and welcome to Darker Days, episode 22, our first full episode of 2011. I am your host, Mark, or should I say one of your hosts. With us is the man who has kept this black ship sailing over the last few months, none other than the lost heretic himself, Mike. Mike, how you doing, buddy? Not bad at all, Mark. How are you? Yeah, well, good to be back on the show. It's been a little bit too long, I think. Yeah, you know, I've been I've been keeping it going, but uh, want to talk about what you've been doing? I heard that you were in a uh, a Wraithlarp or something. You were playing a Sharon, took it really seriously. Did you call me Sharon? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> how, do you, how do you pronounce it? No, is it, right, is yeah. it Sharon? Charon? I think it's probably Charon, but uh, yeah, it was, I was I was in a Wraithlarp. I took it a bit too seriously. I tried to descend to the underworld and fight my shadow, and you know, next thing I know, it's 2011, and I haven't done a show in six months. Mm. So yeah, you know, gaming is bad for your health. It turns out. <laughs> All right. Well, it's good to have you back. <laughs> no, good to be back. Ben, you've done a, an outstanding job keeping the uh, keeping the show afloat. So uh, yeah, oh, good well, stuff, as they say. Well, thank you. Uh, special thanks go out to Vince, who yelled at me to start making shows again. So. Appreciate it, man. And uh, another shout out to Adrian Stagg of the Mirage Arcana. He's helping us out. Uh, yes. Helped us out with episode 21. That was great. Yeah. In fact, they've now surpassed us. We used to joke with them a while ago that they were going to catch up with us. And it's, it's done. They're now on episode 23. So uh, we've got a little bit of, uh, bit of catching up ourselves to do. And I, I listened the other day to the episode 21 that you did with him, uh, which is a sweet little episode. Um, so, yeah, it was good to hear him. Yeah. Uh, busy we had a again. lot of fun with that. A lot of fun. Yeah, that was cool. Cool. Right. Well, there's been a lot of uh, uh, mails coming in thick and fast in the last few weeks in the mailbag, uh, largely because of the competition, which you attempted a, a little while back. Um, submissions on uh, the rapid fire summaries of the various Old World of Darkness and New World of Darkness game lines. So you've had a ton of those flooding the Darker Days email address. And we'll get around to a few of those later on in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I think, um, well... As anybody who listens to the show regularly would have noticed, there was a noticeable absence right at the beginning. Our little bumper was away, um, our WGPRN bumper, and there's reasons for that. So uh, without further ado, I think we should uh, head on to the network news segment. Yep, let's go. All right, network news. Uh, So as people have probably figured out, Wild Games Productions Radio Network is no more, but I don't want you to get scared because we're still buddy-buddy with the Mirage Arcana. Yeah, indeed. Um, we, we, we managed between us to effectively kill the network and take its stuff, and uh, we're heading on uh, onto fresh waters, um, and regular cooperation and the regular shows come on your way. Mm-hmm. So hopefully we'll be uh, doing some more stuff with them in the future. I really just want to bring up that they've been pumping out some shows as well. They had Mirage Akarna 21, which was talking about the Dark Conspiracy game by Game Designers Workshop. They also recently had number 22, which was talking about Rifts, and it was also dedicated to me, so I was pretty excited about that. Although I'm not a big Rifts fan. I got given a couple of Rifts book. No. I play. I'm a big Torg fan, so you know that's my multi-genre game. Hmm, I got which you. Also, nobody wants to play. So. Yeah. And the other day, they just put out uh, episode number twenty-three, which is an interview with Ed Greenwood. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I just saw that on their page today. I'm gonna have to go check that out. So, uh, mm-hmm. very cool. Yeah, they're they're blazing great trails, and it's a great podcast. So, anybody who's a fan of role-playing games in general, across all genres and all systems, you should definitely check out uh, Mirage Arcana. Good stuff, indeed. 
All right, sounds good. So let's move on to the White Wolf news real quick. And with White Wolf news, I just want to take a step back, go back four months, and just give a little shout-out to Eddie Webb, who is now the World of Darkness developer. That's pretty exciting news, and he's a friend of the show, and I just wanted to say, good job, keep up the good work. Eddie, well done, man. Yes, very, very well deserved. So, yeah, I'm sure he's real happy with that. And uh, Mm -hmm. they've doubtless been cracking the whip hard and keeping him busy since, uh, since he moved on to the position. Yep. But White Wolf's news, I mean, uh, the day today, the actual day we're recording the show, uh, their website, their new website, finally went live. Extremely uh, interesting to see. The forums are all back and uh, up and running. I'm not sure all the threads are all there. I don't see our threads, so we'll have to make a new one. But yeah, it looks like it could be good. Do, have you had time to check it out yet, Mike? I haven't really checked out the forums that much, but I was looking at their website, and I clicked on the gallery for the old World of Darkness section. It was pretty cool oh, to yes. look at all the covers that they have up there, and they're very, very high-resolution pictures. Yeah, yeah, that was very good to see. I was, I was pleased with that. I was just going to say there's more of the old World of Darkness ones than there are of the new, um, surprisingly oh, really? enough, so that's nice to see. I noticed that there's a lot of Vampire the Masquerade stuff, but not too much from the other games. I saw some Hunter, saw some Mage, not really anything for Werewolf, surprisingly. No, I, I noticed a few Dark Ages uh, pictures too, but you're right, no. Mm-hmm. But I guess there's, there's plenty of time, you know. And uh, there's also word for, uh, that in the second phase of uh, the website, they're going to start re- uh, developing community blogs too. So it looks like they've got a, a plan in mind. Um, hopefully we'll see that just go from strength to strength. So uh, good job, guys, the wolf. Uh, nice one. Yep. And I also just wanted to talk about some of the new releases they've got because we've only had about a, one month between shows and they've put out a pretty decent amount. Uh, Scenes of the Embrace came out, 14 scene collection for different embrace scenarios that you can use in your game that's for vampire the requiem but it can be really applied to vampire the masquerade and we did an interview with monica valentinelli the author and that was pretty cool that was back in darkling number 16 that sounds about right yeah 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 mm-hmm. good and also there's those uh well missing or deleted scenes from uh, mirrors the, the bleeding edge cyberpunk hack and also world of darkness mirrors infinite macabre a kind of sci-fi hack for the new world of darkness uh which i haven't gotten either of those yet but they're super cheap um, so I'm looking forward to picking those up and browsing through those in the near future. Yeah, I heard some really good reviews of those. Uh, I believe Chuck Wendig did Infinite Macabre, and Bleeding Edge was written by Russell Bailey. Oh, cool. Okay, well, they, they should definitely be good. Yep, two big names. Outstanding. And the other thing to bring up is that uh, there's some more print-on-demand. I've heard that Fear Maker's Promise has made its way into stores, so you can go pick that up. And they've got a lot of good stuff going on with that. Well, it's interesting to see these things not just being delivered through, you know, drive through RPG or whatever, but they're actually making the, the back in the stores now. So that's uh, that's great. And uh, yeah, you, you know, mm-hmm. like you also said earlier on, Block by Bloody Block, New Wave Requiem, um, reprints like Laws of the Night and Laws of the Wild. Those are fantastic. I mean, you've actually seen some of the print-on-demands, right? You've, you've had physical copies. Yeah, I got a couple. You can check that out in Darker Days video number two. And they're pretty yeah. good. I got a few reservations about them, but I think that Give it three months or something, and these are going to be perfect. Okay, folks, welcome back then to The Secret Frequency, and uh, this episode, we take you to the Mountain of the Dead and take a look at the Diatlov Pass incident. 
Now, the Dyatlov Pass incident refers to an event that resulted in the deaths of nine skiers and hikers in the northern Ural Mountains in Russia on the night of February the 2nd, 1959. It happened on the east shoulder of the mountain Kolatsyakl, which means Mountain of the Dead. The mountain pass where the incident occurred has since been named Dyatlov Pass, after the group's leader, Igor Dyatlov, who, along with his uh, eight companions, perished under grisly and mysterious circumstances. So what exactly happened? Well, there were ten to begin with, eight men and two women, and they went on an expedition out into the wilds of Russia to reach a place called Ortorton Mountain via an admittedly difficult route. And I should point out that the name Ortorton, by the way, in the local language means don't go there. So uh, you can kind of guess how it's going to end. <laughs> yeah. They were all experienced uh, hikers and skiers. Uh, they headed out to a town called Vijay, which was the last inhabited settlement so far north, and then continued on foot. One of them returned home the next day due to illness. And then there were nine. Diaries and uh, cameras that were found around their last camp have made it possible to track the group's route up to the day preceding the incident. So on January the 31st, the uh, group arrived at the edge of a highland area and began to prepare for climbing up through the mountain pass. They cached surplus food and equipment, which they'd be planning to use for the trip back, a uh, trip which they never took. The next day, they started through the mountain pass, but got lost in bad weather. They found themselves halfway up the slope of uh, this surrounding, uh, surrounding mountain. And when they realized this, they decided this was a good place to stop and set up camp on the slope of the mountain, weather out the storm and move on, get their bearings again the next day. And that was it. No word was ever heard from them again. People were expecting to hear from them on their return to civilization, and when over three weeks had passed, a massive search and rescue operation began. Now, it's sad, but it's not wholly unusual. Even experienced trekkers can fall foul of Mother Nature, right? But the uh, search and rescue team soon uncovered mysteries that were anything but usual. Starting on February the 26th, over three weeks later, the searchers found their abandoned camp. The tent was badly damaged, ripped open from the inside. They followed footprints into the woods on the opposite side of the pass, a kilometre and a half away. And they found there the remains of a fire, along with the first two dead bodies. Their hands were burnt, they were shoeless, and dressed only in their underwear. Between the fire and the abandoned camp, the searchers found three more corpses, who seemed to have died in poses suggesting they were attempting to crawl with their last strength back to the camp. It took more than two months to find the remaining four bodies, and they were finally found on May the 4th, under four meters of snow in a nearby ravine. And it only gets stranger. When the first bodies were found, back in February, the lack of life-threatening injuries led the investigators to conclude that they died of hypothermia. But when they found the other four bodies in the ravine a couple of months later, the picture changed. Three of the dead in the ravine had fatal injuries. One had major skull damage, the other had major chest fractures. And uh, an investigator, his opinion was the force required to cause this such damage was comparable to the force of a car crash. Despite the freezing sub-zero temperatures and the storm, they, like the others, were only partially dressed. But in this case, they were dressed in clothes belonging to the other dead who died up the mountain. One of them had two watches on his wrist. And one of the watches showed the time of 8.14 a.m. and the other 8.39 a.m. Even stranger, the bodies had no external wounds, as if their wounds were due to a high level of pressure. One woman was missing her tongue. There were no footprints around them, suggesting that no one else had been in the area, and there were no signs of a hand-to-hand -hand struggle. 
And even though the temperature was around minus 25 to minus 30 degrees Celsius with the storm blowing, as I said, they were dressed only partially. Some had one shoe, others had no shoes or wore only socks. Now on its own, this isn't unheard of. Cases of hypothermia can result in what's called paradoxical undressing. As the victim becomes disoriented, confused, and they may begin to discard their clothing, which then, of course, gets them into a bit of you know, vicious circle, increasing the rate of heat loss. But these aren't the only odd details. Um, as I said before, the tent had been ripped open from within. The victims had died six, seven, eight hours after their last meal, so they you know, had time to eat, settle down. Traces from the camp showed that all group members left the camp of their own accord, on foot. The fatal injuries on the three bodies could not have been caused by another human being because the force of the blows was too strong and there was no soft tissue damage on the outside. Forensic radiation tests showed high doses of radioactive contamination on the clothes of a few of the victims. Another investigation years later, 2007 if I recall, found what uh, one investigator described as a cemetery of scrap metal nearby, suggesting that there was a military base and the military may have been conducting tests in the area. The sole survivor, who avoided death due to his early illness and returned home, was asked to identify the owners of the various belongings found around the camp. He did so for the most part, but was unable to identify a piece of cloth that he said looked like it came from a soldier's coat, a pair of glasses, a pair of skis, and a piece of a third ski. He also says he saw documents that suggested that a criminal investigation had been opened into the incident on February the 6th, two weeks before the tent was found. The final verdict was that the group members all died because of a compelling unknown force. The inquest ceased officially in May 1959 due to the absence of a guilty party. The files were sent to a secret archive, and photocopies of the case became only available in the 1990s, with some parts missing. Skiers and other adventurers were barred from the area for the next three years, and after the funerals, relatives of the deceased claimed that the skin of the victims had taken on a strange brown tan, and their hair had begun to grey. In a private interview, one of the investigating officers said that his Geiger counter had shown a high radiation level on the mountain, but no source for the contamination was ever found. And the police officer who led the inquest later said that he received direct orders from high-ranking regional officials to dismiss the inquest and keep its materials secret after reporting that the team had seen flying spheres in the area. Similar airborne spheres were observed in adjacent areas continually during the period of February to March 1959 by various independent witnesses, including the Meteorology Service and the military. To this day, the truth about the incident remains a mystery. There are plenty of conspiracy theories about it out there, ranging from secret military experiments gone wrong, to UFOs, to attacks by Yeti, to murders carried out by a race of secretive subterranean Russian gnomes. Uh, one person even uh, yeah really one person even suggested that it might have been an avalanche but that's clearly just crazy talk now for the world of darkness we need not restrict ourselves to such prosaic and mundane explanations as flying saucers and homicidal gnomes of course if we discard the hypothermic explanation of paradoxical undressing it's possible the victims were subjected to some kind of magical compulsion that caused them to flee the tent I mean, if it's magic then a different kind of paradox might have been involved an anomaly of the mind arcana, for example, causing them to run out into the snow, tearing their tent open from within. And this is also a good explanation for their otherwise inexplicable injuries. Could they have fallen foul of a solitary shaman dwelling high on the mountain? The lack of tracks suggests they came under attack from spiritual entities of some kind, either those that leave no traces due to being immaterial or airborne, or those that can cross over from the spirit world into our world at will, leaving no mark of their passage. Did the explorers transgress some area sacred to shapeshifters, a guru care or changely freehold? 
Was the sole survivor somehow involved? What if he were connected to supernatural entities of some kind? Entities that demanded a sacrifice? Could he have sent his nine companions to their deaths as a way of sealing a pact with the dark abyssal forces? And what would he get from the deal? What did the local Mansi tribe know of the area? They named the two mountains in the story, Mountain of the Dead, and don't go there after all. Have they had experiences of this kind of phenomenon before? Player characters trying to unravel the mystery might need to track down these nomads and find out what they know. You could use this in your game by having relatives or friends of the characters go missing on an expedition into the wilderness, motivating the player characters to look into the matter when the bizarre evidence comes to light. What were the balls of light seen in the area? Spirits passing through the material plane? Supernatural entities reflected upon the face of the fallen world from the supernal realms? By-blows of magical combat taking place? Paradox effect? And, strangest of all, what happened to the woman who was missing her tongue? So Mike, how would, uh, how would you use this in your game? Well Mark, this is one of those secret frequencies, or things that you find that fits beautifully into the world of darkness, because no matter which game you apply it to, it's not going to fit correctly. It's it's not going to be an easy, oh, this was clearly the Silver Fangs in Russia, you know, chasing yeah, yeah. after some <laughs> humans. You can't say, oh, this is clearly some mage paradox, who's he, what's he. And with this story, there's always these little things that just, like, don't fit. For example, you were, you were mentioning the uh, one officer with a Geiger counter. I was reading mm. some articles. I couldn't figure out why he had a Geiger counter there. Yeah, well, I mean, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem like standard practice to just be like, oh, I'm going to see if there's radiation on this random mountain in the middle of nowhere. That <laughs> that just doesn't make any sense. So no. perhaps he was given orders to go there with a Geiger counter, but he doesn't know what he's looking for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah, and the whole thing about, you know, Guru Cairns, then that, you know, that made me think, well, then how come there's no big uh, claw footprints around the area? Like you say, that every, every answer you look at has an anomaly attached to it, which is kind of nice. Exactly. I was also thinking a bit about the uh, Necroscope books, because those have some basis with the uh, KGB in Russia. Yes, and yes. you could draw some ideas right. from that if you wanted to, if you wanted to bring in a, a, a different sort of literature into your World of Darkness game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very, very good inspiration there for uh, for Psychic Warfare, and well, and the entire Tsimishay clan, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. Good stuff, yeah. those. Other than that, I mean, this works very well with, with Hunter games, Pretty much everything. Hunter, 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 yeah, Hunter is like a catch-all. You can anything you can make work with the new Hunter game is brilliant. It's nice. Yep, I was kind of thinking cool. about uh, about Project Twilight and the uh, the old government stuff that they did for Old World of Darkness, and because uh, I was thinking oh, about yeah, Necroscoping cool. KGB. Well, in the uh, in the final analysis, I think the moral of the story is uh, if someone suggests that you go to a, a part of the country where there is a mountain called Death Mountain and another one called Don't Go There, I would I would take the advice and just dude, don't go there. All right, with that, I think we're going to move on to the Old World of Darkness section. Classic World of Darkness. All right, so tonight we're going to rapid fire through every single game in the Old World of Darkness. We're going to talk about the basic rules that you find in the storyteller system. We're going to talk about all the different games from Vampire the Masquerade down to Orpheus. We had a request for something like this a long time ago where uh, one of our listeners was talking about how useful it would be to have a show that contains like a kind of point of reference for people who don't know the uh, don't know the World of Darkness. You can say, well, go listen to episode whatever. So in this case, um, you, you point him to episode 22 because we're going we're gonna to give you the dirt right now. Yep, sounds good. And it's good to bring up that just doing this all by ourselves is quite a bit of work. So that's why we asked you, the fans, to send in your submissions. 
yeah, and we got a whole bunch of those on email. Um, we're gonna we're gonna take a couple on ourselves, and uh, for the others, uh, a couple we're gonna read out written submissions, and a few of the others, uh, uh, some of our listeners took the time to record segments, and we're gonna plug those right into the show for you to check out in just a minute. So let's look at the basic uh, the basic system of the old world of darkness. Essentially, you've got a character who is rated by dots, and your character's attributes, strength, manipulation, dexterity, appearance, etc., are typically rated between one to five dots, and your skills, melee, craft, survival, medicine, etc., are rated from zero to five dots. So it's possible to be unskilled in something, uh, whereas it's not possible to have no dexterity. And when you need to resolve a task, your storyteller will tell you to take an attribute and a skill. So a classic one is dexterity and melee to hit somebody with a stick. And you'd look at your sheet, add up the number of dots associated with the attribute and the skill. So take your dex dots and your melee dots. And that number is the amount of 10-sided dice you roll. Uh, So you pick them up, your storyteller will give you a difficulty number, and each dice that comes up above or matching that number is a success. So if he says, okay, this is difficulty six, you roll your 10-siders, and everyone that scores six or higher gives you a success. If you have at least one success, the task is completed. And that's it, basically. <laughs> yep, simple as that. And then all the different powers, like vampire disciplines or werewolf gifts, they're all based off of that same same system right there. Exactly, and they, they plug right in. And there'll normally be a power stat, like uh, blood points for vampires, or quintessence for mages, or gnosis for guru, that is used to somehow fuel your supernatural abilities. You have health, which is rated uh, 1 to 7, and when you go past 7, you're dead. And yeah, that's about about the size of it. A nice, simple, lean, slick system, um, which in play actually lends itself to a a surprisingly immersive narrative style of gaming, even though on on the surface of it, there's nothing nothing new there. Role-playing games have had stats and skills and hit points or the equivalent for for, for decades. And yet there is something about the World of Darkness system that's kind of gestalt, that that, it, it allows itself to produce these emergent qualities that lead to these much more immersive games than the system might otherwise suggest. So with that, I guess we'll just jump into the uh, different World of Darkness games. 20 years ago this year, uh, Vampire the Masquerade hit the market. Build is a storytelling game of personal horror. It, uh, well, as you might guess from the name, details playing vampires. So let's listen to a quick submission from Beckett. Vampire the Masquerade. The initial setting for the World of Darkness, Vampire is a game of personal horror that pits the dwindling parts of the human spirit against the degenerative ravages of the inner demon, only amplified and fed by darkness and savagery beyond human endurance. Having once been mortal, but now forced under the curse of vampirism, you must survive the politics and intrigues that the kindred partake in to pass their immortal time, while at the same time holding on to the things that make you human as you strive against the beast within. Vampires. The kindred are said to have derived from the biblical Cain. His vampiric children spread throughout the world, but manipulating and dominating the humans they must live amongst. As they spread and passed on their curse, they developed into unique families called clans. While the clans are not always unified towards any specific goal, they do tend to steer individuals to certain areas of power and influence. Kindred have always been amongst us, dwelling like some sort of cancer that corrupts from within. But sometime, In the Dark Ages, when humans had had enough and rose up against the children of the night, many kindred came together in a rare unity to agree to exist by certain universal rules and allowing vampires as a whole to slink back into the shadows that the mortals might forget they really existed. Called the Traditions, 
They are six laws that govern the different aspects of a vampire's nature, such as disallowing a vampire from freely passing on the curse so as to keep their numbers low, forbidding outright slaying of another vampire without permission, so that outright immortal war will not alert the mortals that there are monsters among them, and finally, the most important law, that of the masquerade. The idea that humanity can never know that the supernatural really exists. Of the thirteen clans, seven agree to these traditions and form a semi-unified organization working together as bickering rival brothers for the continued existence of all vampires. This organization, the sect known as the Camarilla, has developed into the largest base of power worldwide and is also the most numerous group within kindred society. The ivory tower of the Camarilla is comprised of the seven clans, but espouses that all kindred are automatically members, and therefore under its rules. Made up of the Bruja, once warrior philosophers and devil's advocate amongst the nobles of their kind, they have since fallen into a form of disgrace as brutes and thugs. The Gangrel, wild and savage, the kindred most in touch with their inner beast, and able to call upon it to physically change themselves, according them the powers of the traditional vampire, perhaps the most feared of all kindred as individuals. They not only endure, but thrive in the wilds where no other kindred would travel. The Malkavians, insane to a one, push the bounds of reality, and some few develop an oracle's insight or a prophet's wisdom. Others are righteous pranksters, while some are just simply crazy. They are the clan ruled by chaos. The Nosferatu, most cursed of all kindred. Each is inhumanly hideous. Many are deformed, and most, if not reviled, treated as lepers. They have developed a powerful ability to hide and to appear as others. But, because their appearance casts them out, they have the strongest of clan bonds, and have dirt on everyone. The Toridor are the beautiful ones, the popular ones. They are the artists, celebrities, and socialites of the kindred, possessing the ability to easily sway the emotions of others, and masters of seduction. The Tremir, second youngest of the clans and the least trusted of the Camarilla, once human wizards attempting to escape some coming doom, they experimented on vampiric blood then transform themselves into vampires. The second most unified of the clans, they wield unique blood sorcery, and are universally one step bound to the entire clan. To ensure their loyalty, both make them very powerful, but at the same time no other clan has more enemies wanting their utter destruction than the Tremere. Finally, the Ventru. Traditionally the rulers, nobles, and leaders of the vampire kind, they have since switched to a more administrative role as the leaders of the Camarilla. Theirs is the power to both dominate immortals' thoughts, and to manipulate their emotions and desires as well, meaning that each Ventru is actually an army into themselves. As the Camarilla was formed, not all were pleased with the idea. Two clans in particular actively opposed it, while four clans remained, in a sense, neutral. The two that believed that vampires should not hide from humanity, but rather enslave it, formed the Sabbat, and they revel in their inhumanity comprised of two clans claiming to have destroyed their own founders. In order to survive, they had to ally with defectors from all the other clans, becoming a melting pot of different ideologies, or crusading under the banners of personal freedom, twisted canine spirituality, and embracing the vampire's nature rather than struggling against it. The Lazambra are cruel manipulators and masters of shadow magic, able to both destroy an opponent's will and to call upon the Void to terrify and to attack. They lead the Sabbat on crusade 
against all they see as unworthy of their damnation. Beside them stand the Zimitsi. Hailing from the lands attributed to Dracula in modern vampire myth, they hold to strange foreign traditions and are able to mold flesh and bone as easily as soft clay. Zimitsi study all aspects of the body and how to change it, typically enjoying torture for its own sake through their craft in their search for metamorphosis. But not all clans took a side, and in fact, in some cases, were disallowed from joining one. These four, all fairly small groups, exist and thrive in between the cracks of the Camarilla and the Sabbat. Like the Sabbat, they sometimes follow very inhuman philosophies, but typically do not do so for its own inhumanity. Asimites, mostly Middle Eastern in origin, are assassins on an unholy quest to rid the world of the unworthy, or to steal their vitae for themselves. Armed with a special ability to turn their blood into a poison that even affects the undead, virtually feared by all others for their prowess. Of Set, a clan that originates not from the mortal, but the Egyptian god of storm and discord. They use vice and corruption to build their strength and weaken others in their goal of resurrecting their lost founder and plunging the world into a true darkness. Their powers of temptation and seduction are well known, but that does little to limit their effectiveness. Giovanni are the youngest of clans, having actually stolen their immortality and damnation from a now extinct parent clan. They have wealth beyond measure, and even as mortals had fallen into such depravity that they began to delve into the darker arts of necromancy for fun. A gift that has only gotten stronger as they themselves join the ranks of the undead. Finally, the Ravenos, the clan that may no longer be a clan depending on the period of time you play the game. Early wanderers only staying in one place long enough to cause no end of trouble and mischief to the natives before moving on. They wield the powers of illusion. The Ravenos have a well-earned reputation as thieves, charlatans, con artists, rogues, and entertainers, and like the Gangrel, claim roots amongst the gypsies. And still, other things exist as well. Rare bloodlines, the remnants of former clans, and the mysterious Inkanu, and a thousand other creatures with no love for the kindred. Vampires claim the cities as their domain, but outside those fortresses, Lupines roam eager to destroy any vampire on some sort of religious mission. The spirits of past victims might return from the grave for vengeance, or simply to help the vampire's moral struggle against the beast go downhill that much quicker. Even within the cities, there are those humans that do know, either born with some special occult understanding, or those rare few that have survived a monstrous attack, and now know that real horrors are out there, and hunt them. But maybe the worst enemy each vampire must face, besides the beast within them, is simply time. Their own immortality begins to cause the vampire to seek more defiled and vicious forms of entertainment. Long-term rivalries to pass the time, playing emotional and mental games with those weaker than themselves, just to see what will happen. And the oldest game, that of the Jihad. At their heart, each vampire is a lone predator, and they want to be the only one, the last one. The one that not only survives, but rules. The heart of the Jihad. The eternal struggle for dominance that each vampire attempts to gain power, allies, influence, and pawns to achieve. It is said that the most ancient still play the Jihad, even in their sleep, able to manipulate nations, clans, and sects through their dreams and carefully laid plans that play out through the centuries. One day they shall rise, and when they do, only the blood of other vampires will save them. Your blood, if you're not strong enough to resist.
That is the end game of their jihad, and they have a head start. All right, Mark, what'd you think of that? Uh, well, Beckett uh, hits the, the ball out of the park as usual. He uh, he knows his stuff, and that's uh, an insightful and useful rundown there uh, about Vampire the Masquerade. Um, like like a lot of people, Vampire the Masquerade is uh, one of the games I've played the most. In my case, second to Mage. Um, I, I found it interesting in its initial incarnations. It was very much clearly inspired by kind of a combination of uh, Anne Rice and uh, and Dracula, I suppose. Um, with a little bit of near dark thrown in there for good measure, but what I find interesting about it over its over its lifetime is how it expanded and how many different types of uh, of vampire fiction and horror it went on to embrace. Pardon the pun. Necroscope is a good one, you know. Um, mm-hmm. yep. the, the whole Simiche clan and the fantastic Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand, which um, is, as yes. you have said, the best supplement. Yes, it is best bar none. Um, really showed how far you can take this. You know, there are people who 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 for whom it went too far and, and strayed away from its uh, somewhat purer roots, and uh, a lot of that was redressed in, in you know, the kind of the reboot of Requiem. Um, but what I like about it, especially, uh, and I'll, I'll come back to this a couple of times, is the fact that you have a more or less complete, immense vampire toolbox that you can get stuck into and build more or less any type of vampire game you like. You know, Mark, locked deep within the White Wolf World of Darkness wiki, I made the Dirty Secrets of the Black Hand page. And it says, oh, was that you? "Yeah, it says it is the best source book for Vampire the Masquerade, unless someone changed it." Well, if they do, we'll just change it back. Yeah, we will. All right, uh, Vampire the Masquerade. I've had a lot of fun with this game. There's so much versatility in it. While it is a political game at its roots, when you look at the Camarilla, you can also go into a yeah. lot of a lot of combat focus. If you want to go into a Sabat game, where perhaps you're making war or doing a crusade against a Camarilla city. You can also go mm-hmm. into a lot of exploration and sort of mythological themes if you use uh, more independent vampires. One great inspiration for this is uh, Beckett. Not, not the user, but the uh, character within the game. Yeah. He, is a, he is a vampire uh, archaeologist, basically. He's somewhat inspired by Indiana Jones, but it really just works. He's such an interesting guy. Yeah, he's very cool. I like him. So with that, I guess we'll move on to Werewolf the Apocalypse, which was released in 1992, and Marquis von Vimenes is going to present this storytelling game of savage horror. Good evening. This is Marquis, and this is a segment recorded for the Dark Days podcast on WGPRN, wildgamesproductions.com.
this is Marquis, and tonight I'm going to be talking about Werewolf the Apocalypse, one of the most controversial games for the old world of darkness, but one that I feel, if played right, can be one of the best. Werewolf builds itself as a storytelling game of savage horror. While this is certainly part of the game, I feel it would be better described as a storytelling game of mythic horror, for reasons I'll get into in a moment. In Werewolf, you play a creature part spirit, part man, that can shift forms at will, going between human, wolf, and everything in between, including the terrifying nine-foot-tall Krenos form that most werewolves are recognized as. Characters generally start off as having only recently discovered their werewolf heritage, when something in their lives pushed them that little bit too far, unleashing the rage within with bloody results. The werewolves are then generally taken in by Garu society, as werewolf society refers to itself, and taught the ways of their people, their true people. This, inevitably, involves preparing the cubs for war, a war that has been raging since the beginning of time, and that the werewolves now seem on the cusp of losing. The worm, the spirit of destruction, rages, destroying the world it once kept in balance, spawning legions of servants and slaves that threaten to destroy everything it once protected. Everywhere, its influence is apparent, from corporations that pursue their aims of profit at the cost of the environment and their employees, to broken neighborhoods and broken homes, perpetuating cycles of abuse and poverty. That is the mark of the worm. And that is what the werewolves fight every day. Whether they recognize it or not, however, the worm is not the only threat to Garu society. The weaver, the spirit of patterns and order, extends its tendrils through human cities and technological advances. As a consequence, the Umbra, the spirit world, is ever removed from modern life, and humans feel alienated and alone. The wild, the primordial spirit of chaos, creation, and potential, finds it all the more difficult to manifest in the physical world, resulting in stunted creativity and stagnation. These three great spirits, worm, weaver, and wild, once ensured the balance and livelihood of the world. But that careful balance has now been destroyed, and Gaia, the spirit of the earth, is under threat. It falls to the werewolves, the Garu, her chosen warriors, to defend her to the last breath. In-game, they do this not only by using their different forms, but also gifts, powers taught to them by the spirits as well as the powers of rage and gnosis that they can tap at will. Rage indicates the supernatural fury of a werewolf's bestial side, whereas gnosis measures their connection to the spiritual world and the umbra. Both are needed to power the gifts granted to them by the spirits, and both can be gained through gameplay and interactions with the world and its characters. Werewolf also presents a sophisticated character advancement system, known as Renown. By acting with honor and wisdom, and by gaining glory, 
A werewolf advances in Garu society, allowing them to learn more powerful gifts and to assume a greater position within that society. The renowned system is an excellent way of tracking a character's actions and rewarding good role-playing with more powerful gifts and greater influence. Mysticism, spirits, and rituals are also a key feature of Werewolf, especially as the characters can physically enter the Umbra, the spirit world, and explore it. In fact, there is an excellent chapter in the core book detailing the geography of the Umbra, which is something that you can use not only in Werewolf, but also in Mage and other games. Of course, it also forces the storyteller and the characters to think on several levels, something that might be difficult for some. In terms of story, it is noticeable that Werewolf draws inspiration from several sagas on real-world mythologies, a feeling that's reinforced by the cultural and ethnic flavors of the various tribes players can join. For example, references to the Nordic Ragnarok crop up again and again in the book, with simple concepts such as the worm, the serpent, that can be likened to the Midgard serpent of Norse mythology. To my sensibility, Werewolf offers the chance to retell tales of doomed heroes facing down a mythic apocalypse, as well as creating new ones and updating them for the modern day. Where once it was trolls and giants who threatened to burn the world to ash. In the world of Werewolf, the threat comes from corrupt corporations such as Pentex, who serve the worm by degrading the human spirit, as well as creatures such as the terrible Black Spiral Dancers, werewolves corrupted by the worm and turned to its service. While I wouldn't necessarily describe Werewolf as a very black-and-white game, it can certainly become so. And, well, with a poor storyteller, it can very easily turn into a terrible episode of Captain Planet and the Planeteers meets Lon Chaney's Wolfman. But if done correctly, it can provide an opportunity for epic storytelling and larger-than-life heroes and stories. If you dig a bit into the backstory as well, you can find material to make your werewolf game a bit more nuanced and a bit less black and white. The Weaver, for example, is a very ambiguous figure. Werewolf elders do not openly advocate fighting it, and some tribes openly serve it. Yet, it is taking over the world, eliminating imagination and the spirit world. It is also the one responsible for the worm's insanity. Much is made of the antagonism between werewolves and vampires in the books, but the truth is, werewolves don't exactly know what vampires are. They radiate the energy of the worm, but they are also tied to the weaver, and thus occupy an ambiguous place in the Garu cosmology. It doesn't take that much exploration to find that the Garu themselves are very ambiguous figures, with ugly parts in their history, such as the War of Rage, when they all but exterminated the other shape-shifting races, as well as the Impergium, when they culled the herds of humanity for their own gain. Werewolf is generally a very action-packed, combat-heavy game, but this need not necessarily be the case. Depending on which phase of the moon they were born under, Garu are assigned an auspice which determines their role in the war and society. As such, 
You can vary the composition of the packs. For example, you could have a pack of ragabash, tricksters who will go about solving problems in a different way. Or you could have a pack of thurgers who will focus on the spiritual aspect of the war. One thing you cannot take away from Werewolf the Apocalypse, however, is the cosmology and backstory. It is tied into the very core mechanics of the game, and you can't really, and probably shouldn't, take it away. So if you're one of those people that dislikes the metaplot prevalent in most Old World games, this may not be the game for you. But, if you're looking for an exciting, action-packed game set in the Old World of Darkness, with a strong mythological and spiritual feel, I could not but heartily recommend Werewolf the Apocalypse. This is Mark Key, and I'd like to thank you for listening. So Mark, I wanted to uh, kind of talk about Werewolf a bit, because it's probably the game that, when I first got into the World of Darkness, I had the least exposure to. It didn't really excite me that much originally, mm-hmm. but as I've grown up, you know, I got really, I got more interested in it. The spiritual aspect of it is pretty intriguing. It's something really different. It's a little bit different than anything else you'll see in werewolf fiction. Yeah, well, I, f- I find that to be its its most compelling element, to be honest. That and the whole uh, mythic, and I and I like the way that the Marquis, uh, you know, retags it as a game of mythic horror. Mm-hmm. Um, I. Uh, there's a friend of mine I had uh, in our group. He picked up an early, I think it was a Werewolf first edition. And I remember reading through that and thinking, whoa, hey, look at this. This is not what I expected at all. Yep. And then I, I went on to run a really enjoyable Werewolf Chronicle for a, for a good few years. And one of the things, the most enjoyable elements that we got out of it were the spiritual elements. The fact that there is this you know, hugely well-developed and fascinatingly rich cosmology based around the triad. And then how that is reflected in the behavior of the pack and the cairn and this this kind of miniature microcosm society that the werewolves build up. Uh, you know, they very much are divorced from the real world. We we went through the early parts of the game, really kind of laying it on thick about how uh, how you being a, having discovered your guru really separates you from normal people. You know, you, you you backhand a guy across the face and accidentally break his jaw and that sort of thing, and 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 developing the personal horror in that regard. But then stepping into once you're once you're through that that barrier, you then step into this massive, rich mythological world, and I I find that to be a, a very strong, compelling element of the game. Another great thing about Werewolf the Apocalypse is that right from the get-go, there's a lot more player options than Vampire the Masquerade, and the reason for that is because Vampire the Masquerade you got seven clans in the Camarilla, two in the Sabbat, and then four that are independent. But with Werewolf, there's 14 tribes, which you can choose from for your game. And that gives the players a lot more options, and just there's a lot more to work with right off the bat. Well, and, and yeah, and then the five auspices on top of that. So, you know, uh, a Get of Fenris Ragabash is going to be hugely different from a Get of Fenris Theurge, which again is going to be different from a Bonor Theurge. Um, so, yeah, the, the subtle variations across the tribes and auspices are, uh, like you say, makes a great deal of options for a starting player and for a developed player as well. It's good. Mm-hmm. Anything else with uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse? Wow, I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, I it's I think it's uh, one of the games that can cater to a number of different play styles within a session. We would we would have these intensely kind of personal exploration scenes of uh, of, of inner angst up at the cairn, uh, followed by deep spiritual quests, followed by vast amounts of blood and worm rending toward the end of the uh, end of the session, and then you would repeat this the next session, and you know, the game could go any 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 one direction. Uh, 
and like a vampire game, I think not there's anything inferior about vampire, but its its themes are a little bit more tightly focused, and that may actually be a strength. Um, it may be something of a weakness that the Wheel of the Apocalypse uh, palette is so broad. Uh, but if you if you're running a, a long running chronicle, then that gives you a, a greater deal of variety over the course of the game. Very good. All right, so that brings us to Mage of the Ascension, which was released in 1993. It's the storytelling game of modern magic. However, we don't have a submission for this, so I am going to question Mark. All right, Mark, you ready? I am more than ready. All right. Yeah, you've been training for how many years for this? 1993. <laughs> Since 1993. All right. Mark, what is it all about to be a mage? Mage the Ascension itself, the you know, storytelling game of modern magic, because in, in the first edition it had you know the extra K and you had to say it magic. Um, <laughs> I think it's it's best described by the way that that tagline changed over the course of the game's uh, history. Well, by the time it got to second edition, it was tagged as a storytelling game of reality on the brink, and for the revised edition there was okay there was no tag at all there. Hmm. Um, it's it's about a combination of of magic and and belief and how your belief empowers magic, and how this then leads you to make certain choices in life, and how this interacts with the choices of other enlightened souls around you, and just as importantly about those who are not awakened, who are not enlightened. They call them the sleepers in the game. So it's about power. It's about pride. Uh, it's about daring to look reality in the face and saying, actually, I've got a better idea and then having the will mm. to make it happen. Um, it, it taps very deeply into, um, or echoes very deeply, occult systems, real-world occult systems, uh, and occult beliefs, and religious beliefs, and philosophical beliefs, and then posits that these are the fuel that fires your magic. So you might be um, a Siberian shaman, or you might be an ancient druid, or you might be a hermetic sorcerer, or maybe you're a cutting-edge scientist, you know, forging theories that really do bend the world paradigm to something new. Um, as, as with Werewolf, its palette is immensely broad. It's really from petty conjurers plying their trade on a street corner to fighting battles with the angel of the atomic fire around the moons of Jupiter and everything in between. For, for a lot of mage players, that's part of its charm. And again, as with Werewolf, you can, you can take the, uh, the toolbox approach and pick and choose and weave, the own, uh, weave your own tapestry as you see fit. Mark, could you talk about the four different factions that are vying in the, uh, the Ascension War? Yeah, sure. Um, the, the first edition of the game place a very strong emphasis on these as four separate factions and the lines got blurred a little bit later on but essentially you have the traditions who are the the practitioners of magic as magic uh, they seek to to balance the various forces and influences and philosophies of the universe into something of a cohesive whole and they they're trying to take um, shamanism or hermeticism or religious magic or the cutting-edge techno-weird science, and meld it together into something of a unified whole that they think can bring awakening for themselves and for humanity as a whole. Very broad stroke speaking there. Now, opposed against them are three other groups uh, that don't share the same approach to balance. They, they go more to extremes. Um, on the one hand, there is the technocracy, who embody the desire for control, and for stasis. Mm -hmm. uh, for them, magic is dangerous, um, it's, it's riotous, 
Uh, it costs lives. Um, but more than that, it empowers the individual in ways that the technocracy doesn't like. And so they seek to stamp it out wherever possible and maintain their grip on the current world system of belief, the current paradigm, uh, primarily through an enforcement of, of science. Uh, at least that's their tagline, although technocracy is, is less about actual science um, than it is about using it as a tool for control. Um, you have the Nefandi, who embody the elements of entropy, of decay, of destruction. Uh, and these can range anything from, from you know, your, your kind of classic basement satanic cults uh, to those who worship unpronounceable chthonic entities from beyond the outer dark uh, to uh, creatures that would, you know, not be out of place uh, in the worm of the werewolf game. Very much uh, destruction, perversion, descent, as opposed to the uh, ascension that the traditions uh, espouse. And then finally, you have the marauders, and these embody the concept of wildness, unfettered creation, no holds, no rules, the idea that you can make an individual paradigm completely personal to you and change the world around you without any thought whatsoever for how it's going to affect that world. Um, so the marauders are often called the mad ones. If you take a step back, you can see echoes there of, of, the, of the trinity of uh, creation, stasis and entropy and in werewolf they they pitch that as the weaver wild and worm uh, but it goes you know it goes back through uh through human mythology to the trimoti of uh, hindu religion the norns of the nordic religion uh, the, the the three fates of the celts and so forth and so on it's a, a mythological trope that's existed for a very long time and the traditions kind of sit in between that three and try to form some kind of balance the only other question I got is, uh, could you talk about some of the games you've run with it? Give some ideas to potential players and storytellers. Well, yeah, we over the over the course of a, a long running uh, Mage Chronicle, we we tried to to take the time to look at all the things the game had to offer. So we you know we start we started out with real basic personal level awakenings and trying to protect. I think our first session had to do with um, protecting a church from being demolished because it was in fact sitting on top of a powerful node, but a, a local construction firm was going to build a car park um, over it. You know, just real basic street level uh, uh, stuff along those uh, along those lines and then we had games um, dealing with the location of and theft of ancient magical texts or ancient magical artifacts uh, and you have the kind of indiana jones style hunts across the world to uh, you know recover the pieces of this uh, shattered diary etc um, we looked at games of personal uh, pride and hubris where there was one mage wanted to uh, sneak his way back into paradise into the garden by following clues that were left by Lilith after she was exiled so he was kind of retracing Lilith's steps backwards toward paradise but of course by entering oh, okay. paradise he taints it so the mages were interested in stopping him and then we took it to the full-on extreme with uh, battles aboard secret military space shuttles in orbit around technocracy weapons platforms uh, yes. with angels of the atomic fire and uh, katanas and uh, the whole yes. kind of thing. So, yeah. Yes, <laughs> void engineers. They're so cool. Yes, void engineers. They are, they're fantastic. But that was largely because of the time that we had. You know, we, we kept it going over uh, four, five, six years, and that gives you the time to really explore pretty much anything you like within the mage universe. Very cool. My current mage game is, uh, we're playing on Skype actually, um, because we're all scattered over various countries. Uh, we've gone back down to the street level um, and taken some ideas out of Awakening and kind of gone with the idea that the mage society has collapsed and most of the mages have vanished and no one knows why. So the cabal 
uh, with the, the four or five members of the cabal represent a large proportion of the majors in their home city. Um, so we're kind of really getting down to the, the dirty, gritty street level stuff there again, which is kind of nice to come back to that after, you know, blowing up space stations. Well, with Mage the Ascension, I don't have too much experience with it. I actually have more experience with Dark Ages Mage, which came out. Well, we'll talk about that in the Dark Ages section. Yeah. I've got Mage Second Edition. I've read it, and it's like the uh, the coolest game, which I probably wouldn't run as is. The reason is there's just so much going on, and when you have like a five year chronicle, as you were talking about, you can cover all of that. But if I were to take Mage, I'd probably want to cherry pick and not overwhelm myself. That's that's kind of the point I'm going absolutely. for here. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. The Second Edition core book is notable because it really does contain a snapshot of the entire setting. It's got the whole mm-hmm. thing in there. And the first edition didn't have that developed yet. And the third edition, they deliberately refocused it onto a smaller scale. Um, so the second edition is a, yeah, it's a bit of an odd beast there. You've really got the whole thing, like you say, just thrown at you in one go. Um, uh, yeah, that's, uh, there's a lot there. But yeah, cherry picking it is definitely the way to go. Pick a theme or concept or an area or, and, and just run with that. All right, sounds good. Actually, I do have a question. What is your favorite tradition? Oh no! Yep. <laughs> I can't do that. <laughs> okay, if well, someone, you know, when I, I, it, well, let me rephrase that. So, okay. if someone was to go up to you and say, "Hey, Mark, running a uh, mage game, which tradition would you like to play right now? What would you go for?" Yeah, um, the last time it was a hermetic, and the time before that it was a cult of ecstasy, uh, and the time before that it was a kind of. Uh, weird oriental um, dream speaker I, I first discovered mage through an eight-page advert in dragon magazine that was like a kind of eight-page pamphlet that talked about the factions and it, and it talked about the the nine traditions mm-hmm. and i remember reading them and going oh celestial chorus yeah they're really cool and then the next paragraph oh no no the hermetics yeah I, I could be one of them and every single one i read i would just came away thinking yeah i want to play that i want to play that so i just had to check the game out when it came out and so and now you know 17 18 years down the line i still i can't choose uh and the last time a guy asked me to play mage um he said what do you want to play and the first thing that came to my mind i said i think it was hermetic and i said no you you've got to hold me to that and don't let me change my mind because five minutes from now i want to play something else and he's like okay okay and sure enough you know next week i'm like i thought i could play this. no no i've written you into the chronicle you play the hermetic end of and so you know i kind of need that that stern guidance really because i'm just uh yeah i'm a bit of a mage slut there you go oh well all right <laughs> yeah mage is really cool though um if someone came up to me gave me the same question i'd probably say you know could we play a technocracy game and i could be a void engineer yeah, uh, yeah those guys cool. are just so ridiculously interesting the technocracy itself is really cool and they've got so many interesting things going on they're probably the antagonist that I would most want to play out of all the world of darkness games do you have the guide to the technocracy nope okay well it's it's a late second edition supplement it's a hardback it's like a it's like the technocracy core, core book it's fantastic mm-hmm. real interesting look at them as a, as a whole and, and that gives you the technocracy in a single book the whole thing um, so that's worth checking out very cool i guess we'll move on to wraith the oblivion and that yeah. was released in 1994, and Alan Smithy sent us some text about this storytelling game of death and damnation. Mark, would you like to read that? Yeah, I'll, I'll jump on that, sure, All no right. problem. Um, it's actually, his discussion on Wraith is more of a, a rebuttal to, to various uh, what conceptions and misconceptions in other reviews. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll, I'll, we'll go through what he says here, and you can, you can, it'll give you some kind of context of where he's coming from. Yep. Um, so he, he says, um, I've read several reviews for Wraith the Oblivion, and I'm rather perplexed. The reviewers just don't seem to get the point of the game. This is precisely what kept Wraith sales down and led to the early cancellation of the series. 
In order to run a Wraith game, you need players, and more important, a storyteller, who really get the point of Wraith. Let's break it down by the main complaints. Uh, I've heard it said that the characters are underpowered compared to other World of Darkness creatures, and that it is not fun because you can't interact with the physical world. I believe this is the ghost of old-school hack-and-slash gaming rearing its ugly head again. Sure, you can have a lot of fun with Vampire the Masquerade game, where you ruthlessly gain power, vanquish your enemies, and seize control over a city's assets. But you could also have a game where you explore the personal horror of becoming an undead thing, struggling with the beast within, and the hunger having to feed off life to sustain your horrid semi-life. Wraith serves the latter style. The point is to explore the metaphor and meaning of the ghost story, not to crawl through dungeons with your plus-12 broadsword looking for gold pieces. Of course, your character will have little interaction with the physical world. They're dead. And that really puts a serious hamper on your social life. As one Amazon reviewer put it, imagine the frustration, pain, and tragedy of being able to see and feel and hear the world you left behind, but being unable to move or manipulate that world. Imagine seeing your ex-wife grow old and die, or feeling the impotent rage of watching the bastard who raped and murdered you stalking his next target. Most of the conflict is internal. Your own worst enemy is yourself, or rather the shadow of your nature, according to Jungian philosophy. Your shadow is played by another player, which is an interesting twist. The ideal Wraith game, therefore, is played with at least three players and a storyteller, so that no two players play their opposite shadow. The internal conflict, the pathos of being separated from loved ones, from whatever your player loved when he or she was alive, or things that he or she hated, such as your murderer, the struggle to hold on to your being while oblivion pulls at you, that is the core of Wraith, and if that doesn't sound like fun, then you should really look elsewhere. If it does sound like fun, well, then being dead isn't the handicap it used to be in the olden days. doesn't screw up your career like it used to. <laughs> so, yeah, um, that's uh, pretty much what he has to say on there. And um, on the whole, I tend to agree. I think Wraith is a tough game to get, largely because its, its core issue, its core story, is, is horrible. It's a really horrible, nasty game. Yep. You are dead. And it's just going to get worse. And the only way that, that you can get out of uh, out of being dead and you know move on to a, to a, a proper afterlife that doesn't involve chains and being forged into an ashtray and what have you, is to abandon the things that you love, abandon or hate, but let go of the life that you had and move on to whatever transcendence awaits. And if you're you know if you're invested in your character and have an emotional attachment to your character in the game, that's that's hard to do. You it's it's about unmaking yourself while at the same time avoiding the seductive call of, of instant unmaking that Oblivion offers, becoming a spectre or just becoming nothing at all. Now, he does say that you know the, 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 it's not the idea to crawl through dungeons with your plus 12 broadsword. There was a really not, notable Wraith supplement came out called Doomslayers into the Labyrinth that allowed you to do just that, go into the, the, the Moor of Oblivion uh, and this immense cyclopean labyrinth at the heart of the underworld where the, the spectres and their Malfeian masters dwell. And, you know, gird on your soul-forged longsword and go and kick Spectre butt. So, in fact, um, you, you can do that in Wraith 2 if you want. And uh, the Doomslayer games are, are, are pretty cool. Then, did you have any experience with Wraith at all? Or? Well, one point I wanted to make is actually I was reading through some Wraith stuff. And I was thinking that it could actually be such an amazing Dungeons & Dragons setting. Now, this might seem like blasphemy, but... <laughs> There's just you're, the heret this... you're a heretic after all. So oh, yeah, you got it. <laughs> I don't know why I've been thinking about this, but it seems like just a, such an interesting world to explore in that sort of like party of adventurers context. And you could probably do that with Wraith the Oblivion itself if you kind of uh, brushed a few themes under the rug. Maybe got rid of some of the uh, fetters and and all that, yeah. so that the Wraith 
players don't have to constantly worry about what's going on in the real world. That said, I haven't read too much of the Wraith book. I have Wraith First Edition, but I was reading it in the car going down to my aunt's place this past year for Thanksgiving. And that's a four-hour car ride. Uh, My parents were driving. I was just sitting in the back. And I got 12 pages done. 12 pages in four hours. Because I would read a bit. I'd stop. I'd think. I was reading the portions concerning uh, the formation of Stygia. Okay, yes. How do you pronounce it? Charon? Charon. Charon. Sharon. We'll call him Sharon from now on. Oh, man. We need to get a pronunciation guide from White Wolf or something. <laughs> but there was just so many interesting things going on with him, with the uh, the ferrymen that he was forming and the different politics mm-hmm. going on. So I was just reading the paragraphs, looking out the window, thinking about it, saying like, wow, you could make a really cool game with this. Yeah, definitely. If you divorce it from the from the Shadowlands, from the material world and its reflection, and just drop down into uh, into the you know the, the Tempest and the the Sea of Shadows and the various continents, Stygia and the Jade Kingdom and uh, all the various other Deadlands that are down there, I totally agree. They have a fantastic setting in and of itself. Um, so yeah, uh, again, like uh, I think this is probably common with a lot of White Wolf games. The palette is broad enough for you to tell the kind of game the kind of story and play the kind of game you want to play within the context of the overall picture. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, I, I remember reading back in the day, someone was saying that all the things in the underworld are there to distract a wraith from transcendence. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, that's pretty accurate. I mean, there are heavens down there as well mm-hmm. that are just, they're lies. And there's, there is oblivion itself, which may or may not be a route to some kind of apotheosis. There is ideas of, of, entities that have dropped into the heart of oblivion been unmade and spat out again in the high umbra or something else uh but in general yeah the the underworld is is a trap yeah the whole thing's a trap yep it's very interesting very serious game um i actually remember reading a a write-up by sam chupp who wrote wraith first edition and he's got some Mm -hmm. pretty interesting comments about that i'll try to link that in the show notes it's on uh shadownessence.com okay right yep so i guess we'll uh move on at this point and give you a special treat because Marquis von Viminis gave us an audio clip of Wraith the Great War, the uh, storytelling game of historical horror. So we'll listen to that real quick and talk about that. Good evening. This is Marquis. And this is a segment recorded for the Darker Days podcast on WGPRN, wildgamesproductions.com. It's a long way to I shall not fail. 
setting of Wraith the Great War, a supplement for Wraith the Oblivion, an old World of Darkness game, that takes its setting the Twilight Period, which corresponds in our own history to roughly the end of the First World War, to the onset of the Depression. Now, I can already hear some of you thinking, Wraith the Oblivion is depressing enough as it is. Why bring the First World War and the Great Depression into it? Why would I want to play a game like that? Well, it turns out Wraith the Great War has quite a bit to offer, and can offer some very interesting opportunities for creating characters and telling stories. Specifically, just like in the original game, you play the ghost, the wraith, of someone who has died, and who is now at the mercy of their darker side, known as the Shadow. Just like in our own world, the Twilight Era in the World of Darkness was a time of great change and upheaval, a time where romantic values of ages past were shattered. Of course, at this time, you're very much not the only one to have crossed the Shroud. The carnage of the Somme and the Battle of Verdun as well as the Battle of Passchendaele, have thrown hundreds of thousands of men and women across the Shroud. A fourth great storm, or maelstrom, racks the Shadowlands, composed of millions of spectres, consumed by their shadows and by oblivion in the wake of their brutal and horrible deaths. Across the Empire of Stygia, they howl at the gates, threatening to tear down everything the wraiths have created. To make matters even worse, Charon, the Emperor of Stygia, has disappeared, creating a power vacuum into which the Grim Lord, the Lord over the victims of war and violence, is more than willing to step. Preempting his rivals, he has seized power, imprisoning or destroying any members of the ruling hierarchy who might disagree with him. In addition, he promises members of his legion, and any wraiths who enter the Shadowlands, something more. He promises them justice, not only in those in the Shadowlands, but also upon those still among the living, the officers and politicians who condemned them to this hell. This blatantly violates the Dictum Mortem, the laws of Stygia, and there are many who oppose the Grim Legion on this grounds. In addition, there are also renegades, those who fight against the hierarchy as an entity, as well as heretics, those who choose to keep the strong religious convictions that they held in life and to seek a different form of paradise, beyond the Great Tempest. Of course, the political upheaval in the underworld closely mirrors that in the living world. It bears remembering that the decade from 1918 to 1929 was the stage for profound social and political changes throughout the world. In Russia, the civil war and the Bolshevik revolution still rage, sending supporters of both the Tsarist autocracy and the revolutionaries across the shroud. In America, prohibition is in full swing, and the era of the iconic gangster is beginning to appear. Europe is threatened by communist revolution, much as Russia, and conservative reaction is beginning to form. All of this can provide a rich background for interesting stories and characters. 
Wraith the Great War also brings in a number of system innovations for those who like the Old World of Darkness system. It proposes a skirmish system which allows you to realistically implement mass combat, as well as new introductions to the battlefield such as planes, tanks, and even warships and dreadnoughts. With a bit of tweaking, these rules can be tailored to fit any system in the Old World of Darkness, including Vampire, Werewolf, and, well, um, even Mage if you think of it. The various chapters also include changes to the Arcanoi, the Wraith's powers, as well as entirely new ones to use. It also gives you the opportunity to play different types of characters, including Wraiths from Africa and Asia who find themselves trapped far from home in a war they barely understand. In addition, the supplement also gives you the opportunity to play as a Mortwhite, a Wraith who enters the underworld, already consumed by his shadow, and by doing so, exposes you to the kind of challenges that such a character would face. Does he accept oblivion, or does he seek to transcend? Does he seek redemption? In fact, the various sections of the supplement, including the appendix, are filled with story ideas you can use for a game. For example, what if your players were the members of a tank crew who find themselves catapulted across the shroud with their beloved war machine that they have cherished and taken care of for years? What if the characters are revolutionaries who died for their cause in life, only finding out that the afterlife is crowded with the people they once persecuted? The new shadow archetypes are also particularly evocative. One that strikes me personally as appropriate for the period is the Patriot. The shadow who remains, even in death, convinced that their country was right. Even in the face of the countless atrocities that they committed, or that were committed to them. In short, Wraith the Great War explores terrain that both in system terms and in storytelling terms, is largely glossed over in other World of Darkness games. In this sense, it is unique, and I'd highly recommend it if you can find it, either as a PDF or as a second-hand book. This is Marquis, and I'd like to thank you for listening. So, Mark, have you read uh, Wraith the Great War or done anything with it? I have, yeah. Um, I've uh, played a little bit of Wraith the Oblivion, never played uh, Wraith the Great War, um, but I've looked through it, and I think it's a, it's a fascinating period anyway, um, a real turning point uh, for, the, for the history of Europe as a whole. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but I've never actually had the chance to play it, and I would very much like to. Um, but, uh, you know, getting a group to commit to a, to a serious Wraith Chronicle is, is a tough thing to do, I think. Uh, although it's possible, I think that the uh, the historical cachet that comes with it, you know, you can again, you can f focus it tightly and say, right, we're going to do half a dozen sessions set here around the Somme or uh, or Passchendaele or whatever it might happen to be. Uh, I think that could uh, probably lends itself more readily to uh, immediate gaming. Yeah, I haven't done much with Wraith the Great War, but I did read part of it, and I got to say that the way it's presented, I was completely horrified. Twenty pages in. And I hadn't even gotten to the Wraith politics or anything in the underworld, really. It was just talking about World War One, and it was some pretty terrifying stuff. Yeah, yeah, it's outrageous. So with that, I guess we'll move on to Changeling the Dreaming, released in 1995. 
Uh, Alan Smithy sent us more text, and uh, Mark, would you like to cover that? Sure. A storytelling game of modern fantasy. Now, he starts with Changeling the Dreaming First Edition. It says, This book holds a lot of nostalgia for me. It takes me right back to 1995. Marketed as the last of the White Wolf core game lines before Hunter the Reckoning and Mummy the Resurrection, and now I'm the evocative uh, prove them wrong, it was by far the brightest of the five lines. Many people say it's the lightest. This is misleading. It's the brightest, the most colorful, and evocative. The other games, like Vampire and Wraith in particular, can get bogged down in the dreary weeds of the world of darkness. Changeling offers an alternative, a game where you play a character half-mortal and half-immortal fairy, a creature native to the dream realms. You are literally awash in the dreaming life of mortals, their fantasies, idle fantasy, and darkest nightmares. This means that Changeling can be as dark as you wish it to, or as light-hearted as well. In fact, it's the only core game that has rules for playing children. And believe me, after four years of playing angst-ridden kindred or brutal guru, that was a revolutionary change. Not everything is light, like the other World of Darkness games. There is an apocalypse built in, that involving the death of creativity in light of the cynical nature of our postmodern world. For a changeling, this means the terrifying prospect of the permanent loss of their fairy soul. As much as I love the game in theory, it is a challenge in practice. First, it's the challenge of finding players and storytellers who really grok the game. Many gamers just can't wrap their mind around it. Secondly, is the magic system. Hopelessly broken. Changelings are also underpowered compared to other World of Darkness characters, but this doesn't really matter as the game is a nightmare to cross over anyhow, <laughs> as the Changeling characters exist halfway in their own separate reality of the dreaming. As time went by, I also found the character creation to be rather restrictive, but back in 1995, it was still new and fresh. The design of the book is top-notch, particularly the first chapter where the authors take a playful break from the opening fiction of previous material. The artwork by Tony Dutalizzi and others is top-notch and really helps you grasp the theme and feel of the game. Change of the Dreaming is a game with few but passionate fans, and I hope if you find you enjoyed as much as I did in the spring of 1995. And then he also goes on to share a few thoughts about Changing the Dreaming's second edition. He says, I bring to the table very mixed feelings when I set out to review Changing the Dreaming's second edition. This is one of my favorite games of the World of Darkness lines, but it has its share problems. There are some things that could be improved upon, but wrinkles aside, my core gut reaction is fondness and excitement. Changeling is still the brightest of the World of Darkness games, not the most cheerful. Many people make that mistake. It has the shine of colors and fantasy that Vampire, Werewolf, and perhaps even Mage cannot hope to match, but being that it is a game about dreams, it can also be about the most frightening nightmares as well. Also, a core theme of the game is loss of dreams, loss of imagination, as the world steadily becomes cynical, cruel, and grinding, full of ennui. That is as frightening as any monster indeed. Literally anything can happen in the half-world that changelings inhabit. They are mortal humans that share an immortal soul with fairy of legend, so they have one foot in the real world and one in the imaginary world of dreams. So while a changeling's mortal half may be dodging traffic on his way to work, his face self may be hunting down a quarry on an imaginary steed. Comedy ensues. The biggest problem about the game is finding players and storytellers who really understand this esoteric notion. It isn't a game that everyone can grasp. The second problem is based in irony. While the dreaming is a place where anything can happen, Changing the Dreaming offers frustratingly limited character creation options. If you don't want to be any of the kith archetypes listed in the main book, there isn't a mechanic to create just the kind of fair you want to be without house rules. Also, the magic system is, let's not mince words, it's broken badly. Fans of the series deny or overlook these flaws, however. If you can, then it's a very enjoyable game. Plus, the artwork is luxuriant and beautiful. Well, Changeling the Dreaming. Perhaps the most misunderstood storyteller game 
I'd have to say that there are some phenomenal ideas in it. I mean, you covered Changeling to Dreaming in Darker Days 16? 16, I think it was, yeah. Yeah, all right. I got a good memory. And you presented some phenomenal ideas there, uh, especially Chris Crothian's ideas about the uh, the Children Chronicle. Those were yeah. astounding. Yeah, I think that's a great reference, a great go-to point for somebody who wants a, a a good look at what a Changeling Chronicle can become from two storytellers who've who've done it, you know, from from start to finish. And uh, they, you know, they both ran multi-year campaigns, multi-year chronicles, mm-hmm. sorry. And I think that's a, a really good example of, uh, of how how well it works. I've I've never. Uh, run a, a changeling game although I've, I've had them feature in my games from time to time but definitely it's it's the one that comes closest to fantasy uh, but by by the same definition a fantasy is something which which gains additional poignancy when it's taken away from you and i think changeling can can mm. capture that, that loss of innocence and that loss of hope probably better than many of the other world of darkness games can i've also thought a couple times that it would be interesting to run a changeling game that is a foil to maybe like massive multiplayer online games, because some people mm. have a problem with dealing between their real life and those games. Uh, I know yeah. personally, I played a lot of World of Warcraft when I was I was in high school, and I had trouble you know, just managing my time, really. It could be kind of interesting to yeah. uh, deal with those themes. I stayed well away from them because I knew I would, uh, I would just drown. <laughs> yeah, I'm completely done with them now. Yeah, I think that would be an interesting way to, uh, to look at it, to, to echo the... Uh, you know what it's like to what what it's like to be immersed in fantasy to, to the cost of your of your real existence. Yeah, very cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Sorry. Dark Ages now. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. go ahead. Just gonna say, Vampire of the Dark Ages, nineteen ninety six. Nineteen ninety six. Yep. And I've got a nice write up for you right here. Mm. Hit me. The World of Darkness Dark Ages game lines have an extremely broad purview. From the release of Vampire the Dark Ages in 1996 to the release of Dark Ages Fey in 2004. Not only does this mean the product line supports a wide variety of supernatural archetypes, but the Dark Ages covers many themes from gothic horror in Vampire the Dark Ages to epic horror in the revised Dark Ages Vampire. Most importantly, these are not rehashes of other World of Darkness games. For example, there are astounding differences in mechanics and setting between Mage Ascension and Dark Ages Mage. The Dark Ages games were also notable for their very mature take on medieval history, ending in supernaturals, but doing so respectfully. In particular, Dark Ages is highly regarded for its well-researched source books and portraying historical locations and themes accurately. The Dark Ages line began with Vampire the Dark Ages, which came out in 1996, but also had some origins with Giovanni Chronicles 1, The Last Supper, set in the Year of Our Lord, 1197. And Vampire the Dark Ages portrays a time when Canaanites walked freely among mortals, surviving with intimidation and their blood disciplines rather than secrecy and coercion. Vampires did not belong to sects, but a few belonged to loose ideologies and organizations found throughout Europe, such as the uh, Furies and the Order of Bitter Ashes. Additionally, not all kindred follow humanity. Instead, there are roads of morality. Uh, humanity is one of them, but there's also the road to heaven, road of kings, sin, and beast. And this is how vampires would stave off from becoming whites. Dark Age of Vampire is uh, the revised edition of the game line, providing the final rendition of the storyteller system. And Dark Age of Vampire shifted the game's themes from a lonely, frightful jihad in the long night to a war-torn Europe in an age known as the War of Princes. 
The game's story also shifted up to the year 1230, which is actually one year before the Catholic Church officially created the Inquisition. So Dark Ages of Empire also had four source books released with rules for other supernaturals, and this kind of mirrors the New World of Darkness style of release. Each requires the basic rules provided in Dark Ages Vampire, and all the games are pretty suitably different from their modern counterpart. So let's start off with Dark Ages Mage. Uh, This one describes a mythic age before the Ascension Wars began, and characters belong to a fellowship, which is a precursor to the modern traditions. And most of these are based off of a common faith. So, for example, the Messianic Voices are Christian, and the uh, the Valdermen are more Nordic pagans. Unlike the politics and war of Dark Ages Vampire, Mage takes a, a closer look at the spirituality of the of the Dark Ages and the conflicts surrounding it. Next, they came out with Dark Ages Inquisitor, which introduces the Shadow Inquisition, an organization within the Catholic Church uh, to root out monsters and corruption. But the characters aren't just monks. Uh, They range from scholar-scientists to uh, warriors of God participating in one of the Shadow Inquisition's orders. Inquisitor focuses on almost Call of Cthulhu style of exploration, uh, looking into the unknown in a medieval backdrop. Next up, they came out with Dark Ages Werewolf, which portrays the Garou in the year 1230. Now, unlike the modern knights, werewolves are not fighting a losing war against the worm and weaver. The wild is actually very much in control. Uh, But the tribe's worst enemy is actually themselves. So while the characters belong to one of the uh, 14 werewolf tribes, they're mostly fighting for territory and dealing with spirituality in regards to other werewolf tribes. Uh, Finally, they released Dark Ages Fey, which is perhaps the most radical departure of all the Dark Ages games. Your character is a fae who has returned to the mortal world only to find humanity has broken their ancient oaths and truces. So when you find out that they've failed their stewardship of the world, uh, the fae's four seasonal courts agree to cease hostilities in an effort to take back the earth. And there you have it. It's Dark Ages Vampire and its four games. It's a rather intriguing romp through one of Europe's most desperate times. Yeah, so the Dark Ages line is a fantastic game line. I ran a, a really enjoyable 10-year chronicle that started with the original uh, Vampire of the Dark Ages and, and then followed the, you know, from the Jihad through to the to the War of Princes. Um, it was, uh, for for good reasons, it was one of the first uh, topics that we covered way back in the early couple of episodes of Darker Days. Mm-hmm. And it's very rightly, you know, the reputation that it, uh, that it has is, is well-deserved, I think. Yep, definitely. Uh, I wanted to talk about Dark Ages Mage a bit, because it's pretty cool. Uh, Mark, do you have any experience with that, being the mage guru? <laughs> uh, Dark Ages Mage, I think its its main uh, selling point for me was the fact that it, its magic system uh, was the, the powers of the various uh, factions uh, within the, the fellowships, I think they're called, mm-hmm. were, were key to their they were key to their beliefs. Yes. Um, so in the in the modern game, you have um, the nine spheres uh, that are you know the sort of generic um, matter, life forces, blah. And every mage uses an interpretation of these. Um, in the, in the Dark Ages game, you have very specific pillars and foundations that are keyed right down to what the Masonic voices believe, or what the uh, the Batini believe. Um, or what the spirit talkers believe. 
and that allows you to it, well it, it completely avoids questions of whose belief is right and and yep. you know how does my uh, void engineer uh, communicate with a dream speaker um, because there's there is no overlap there is just these separate groups of belief and the magic system the system of the game supports that perfectly mm-hmm. yeah actually we should probably talk about the uh, the pillars and foundations a little bit so for example uh the messianic voices their four pillars are uh dealing with different archangels and that's how they they're able to do things and the foundation is uh how their paradigm builds off of that and it's pretty interesting yeah. because the uh every every fellowship can pretty much do anything that you want they could even like throw fireballs any of them it's just that certain ones it's more difficult to explain that like as a uh yeah. As a Valderman, it's going to be pretty tough to explain how your runes are going to shoot fireballs around. But as a uh, Ali Batini, I believe they actually have a pillar devoted to fire. So that's pretty simple yeah, then. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think that pretty much just covers Dark Ages Mage. Um, we've talked about Inquisitor here on Darker Days before. We've talked about mm-hmm. Fae in the Changeling episode. Yeah. Uh, the only thing we haven't discussed too much is Werewolf. Well, you know, I looked at... Uh, I, I got... I got uh, the the Werewolf Dark Ages softcover supplement originally, mm-hmm. and then I looked at the hardcover uh, Dark Ages Werewolf, and the reason I didn't pick it up actually because I didn't was that it didn't seem to me to to strike too much of a difference to justify buying the book. You know, there, it's like uh, there wasn't as much in there that was radically different from the from the modern Werewolf game that I couldn't kit bash mm-hmm. the rest of it myself. Because um, we've been, you know, we've been going along quite merrily in our Dark Ages game using werewolves a fair bit, yep. and then when the hardcover came out, I thought, you know, there's nothing really here that I haven't kind of sorted out myself. Dark Ages Mage, on the other hand, you know, was was radically different, so you're really getting something 100% new. But I didn't get that vibe off uh, Dark Ages Werewolf. Now that may be an uninformed opinion on account of, you know, I didn't buy the book, um, but that was kind of the feeling I got from it. Now I've read some reviews, and they kind of agree. Um, mostly, what Dark Ages Werewolf does is it gives you a lot of the setting of political factors that are going on, but a lot of the gifts mm-hmm. and powers are pretty much the same as what you'd find in Werewolf the Apocalypse. Exactly, and given, you know, in my in my case, we, we already had uh, a politics and, a, you know, a guru nation that had developed organically through the course of the Chronicle. You know, I didn't need a, a reprint of the gifts, so, yeah. I guess we'll move on to Kindred of the East, which was released originally yeah. in 1998, and Marquis von Vimenes gives us a uh, presentation of the storytelling game of um, katanas yeah oriental coolness yeah <laughs> hello this is daniel adams otherwise known as mark evil von Viminus, and this is a segment recorded for the darkling podcast on wgprn today i'm going to be talking about kindred of the east one of my favorite settings for the old world of darkness It was released by White Wolf in 1998 to kick off its Year of the Lotus, a series of supplements detailing the world of darkness in Asia. Although it is technically a supplement for Vampire the Masquerade, it takes a radically fresh and different approach to the vampire myth. Instead of playing someone who is taken, drained of their blood, and fed the blood of a vampire, infected with an ancient curse, you play someone who has died and clawed their way out of hell to re-inhabit their body. In this, it somewhat mirrors concepts of other games and supplements, such as the Risen for Wraith or Geist Sin Eaters for the New World of Darkness. But that's where the similarities end. World of Darkness Asia is a mystical place, and its denizens believe the universe is governed by the forces of karma, the cycle of death and rebirth, and the great cosmic wheel that turns inevitably towards the Sixth Age, the Age of Sorrow. 
They believe that there is a reason why people end up in one of the thousand hells, and also a reason why they manage to escape. That there is a reason their souls reintegrate their bodies to take the second breath, to become animated corpses known as Kuei Jin, and to feed off the spiritual energies of the living. The purpose of a Kuei Jin's unlife, then, is to discover what that reason is, why they were given a new existence. And this is where differences emerge between the Kuei Jin. Death separates the soul into different parts, which are now brought into direct conflict with one another. The Po, the darker side of the soul, whispers seductively into the ears of all Kuei Jin, far more insidious than any beast the canines have to face. It draws them towards acts of cruelty and shame. Counteracting it, the Hun, the part of the soul that inspires mortals to act noble acts of honour and duty, raises them up towards transcendence. Unlike kindred who feed on blood, Quajin feed on energy, or ki, which can be found in mortal flesh, blood, and breath, as well as the environment itself. This energy is tinged with those of life and death, yin and yang. As such, if a Quajin has a preference for yang energy, she will be attuned to the pulse of life, creature of passion and fire, even able to bear children in extreme cases. The same Quajin is attuned to the energies of yin, however, she will be calm, icy, pale creature who is in touch with the realms of the dead. In game terms, these four virtues, Han, Po, Yin, and Yang, come to replace conscience, humanity, self-control, and courage from masquerade, and as a consequence can define and redefine a character's very nature and personality. For every Kuei Jin there is a different afterlife. Nevertheless, five broad philosophies called Dharmas were set down by Zhuai, the first great Quajin philosopher, or Arhat, each of which emphasized different parts of the Quajin soul. All give a different answer to what purpose the Quajin serve under heaven. The brash, devil-tiger dharma advocates the cultivation of the Po, arguing that if their souls bested demons and escaped from hell, it was so that they could become demons themselves. Opposite them, the resplendent cranes believe that if they were given a second chance, it was to live with honour and grace, to cultivate the Hun that they never valued enough in life. The thrashing dragons scoff at these grand theories, saying that if they were given a new life, it was because they never appreciated the first one enough, and that it should be their sacred duty to experience, imbibe, and love life, glutting on the energies of Yang. Silently, the followers of the Song of Shadows Dharma shake their heads and go about their business, carrying messages between the dead and the living, comforting the deceased as well as the grieving, and punishing any who lack respect for the spirit world, attuning themselves to the dark energies of Yin. The centre of all these philosophies lies the Thousand Whispers Dharma, who seek to preserve balance above all things, and to seek enlightenment by living hundreds of different existences, each of which gives them a new perspective. Kuei Jin existence, then, is defined by a continuing search for enlightenment and purpose. As such, Elders, or ancestors as they are known amongst the Quajin, defined not only by their age but also by their advancement in a given dharma and their role as teachers. This enshrines them with a level of mystical authority and respect ruled by cultures based on the cult of wisdom and age. Unlike Cainite elders, their authority is spiritual as well as temporal. Eventually, all Quajin believe that they can be reunited with the Great Cycle through enlightenment. Of course, it would be foolish to see such a quest as free from strife. Younger Quajin rail against their betters, denouncing their archaic traditions and outdated philosophies. 
the armies complete peace with one another, each seeing their path as the true path to transcendence. Cultural factions of Huijin play out wars that have lasted for centuries, such as that between the Chinese court of the Quincuks and the Japanese Gaki. And that is without considering the more insidious threats. First among these were the Yama kings, the demon lords of the Thousand Hells from which the Huijin escaped. Originally servants of heaven, these dread lords forsook their duties to glut on the key of the weak and the sinful, creating empires of pain and suffering on the spirit realms. Many Quajin believe that their original purpose was to fight them and to protect humanity from their hunger, but that their failure in this task led them to be cursed with the lust for keys that they feel today. The Yama kings are powerful, and many lesser demons follow them, but none of these are hated as much as the Akuma the Kuei-jin who forsake redemption in favour of power and servitude to the Yama kings. Acting as their agents on earth, they spread their corruption through subversion and the powerful gifts their masters grant them. Nothing unites Kuei-jin quite as much as the discovery of an Akuma in their midst. Other threats, such as the Henge-yokai shape-changers, or the Shade Servants of the Emperor of Jade, or even the mortal hunters of the Shi and Strike Force Zero, also cross their paths from time to time. One of the most divisive topics in Quajian society, however, is the arrival of the Canites, the Western Barbarians in the Middle Kingdom. The ancestors see them as portents of the sixth and final age of the world, tainting the key of everything they touch, infections to be destroyed. Some younger Quajian, however, have found contacts, even allies among them. Even they are cautious and guarded, however. Some especially brave Quajian have taken to travelling into the heartlands of the kindred, reasoning that destroying the plague at its source may prevent the ascension of the demon emperor, the beginnings of the Age of Sorrow. Kindred of the East is certainly an original setting, full of rich character and backstory. In game terms, it is similar enough to Masquerade to be familiar, but different enough to be interesting. The key system is quite a bit more complex than the blood points and generation systems of the original game, but it can also be more rewarding for the storyteller. For instance, to gain a point of yang energy, Rather than just grabbing someone and feeding off them, you can describe how a Quajin goes to a local drinking den or nightclub, soaking up the life of the place and pinpointing a particular victim who radiates yang, tempting them back home to feed off them. Similarly, a Quajin thirsty for yin could make a graveyard or shrine his hunting ground, feeding off the yin of the grieving. Yin and yang can be used for many things, including powering the Quajin's Shintai discipline but should be used more sparingly than blood points, as an imbalance between them can have a profound effect on the character. Similarly, the Po, or Demon, is unlike Masquerade's Beast in that it is very much a sentient entity, much like the Shadow in Wraith the Oblivion. Cultivating it can allow a Quajin to become very powerful, gaining demonic features when he frenzies, voluntarily or involuntarily. It also allows the darker side of a Quajin's soul more control over the character. Quajin don't have clans like Kindred, and the players are the ones who choose what disciplines they want to focus on, and there are many of these. The different dharmas measure characters' enlightenment, but also impact on what they can do. At first they seem like more extensive versions of the paths used by the Sabbat, but advancement within them procures advantages such as being able to feed from breath rather than blood, as well as higher positions in the courts. Like Vampire the Masquerade, there is a lot you can do with Kindred of the East. The game, even more than the original, places a focus on morality, 
although it is of a very different kind to the humanity system to masquerade. For a vampire on the devil tiger path, failing to live up to one's demonic nature, or failing to punish a sinner who deserves it, can be the most sinful thing imaginable, and can provoke a dharma role as an act of blindness. Dharma is different to humanity in path in that it provides actual, tangible rewards, making the characters, and the players, care about gaining and losing it. That being said though, it is just as easy for a storyteller to run a game set on the streets of Hong Kong that is more to John Woo than anything else, especially with the new martial arts system. The art style also suggests a lot of anime influence, and running an anime style game is just as easy. Even cyberpunk can be brought in with the super high-tech hijinks of Strike Force Zero, a secret agency of the Japanese government. You can also send the characters to the Wicked City, a postmodern high-tech hell ruled over by the Yama King Mikaloshi, where cybernetic demons roam the streets and skyscrapers built from these nightmares of urban Asia. As Kuei-jin can travel through the Umbra, you can also bring a lot of mysticism and spirituality into the game. One of the most interesting things you can do, however, is pit your Kuei-jin against Western kindred, showing them, through foreign eyes, as the monsters that they truly are. So, if you'd like to spice up your world of darkness with an exotic, mystical flavour, I'd highly recommend picking up Kindred of the East. It can be a great source of games, chronicles, even antagonists for your world of darkness games. At one point in one of my Masquerade games, I had, uh, I had the characters face off against a group of Kuei-jin who were all members of a visual K-band. It was quite fun, and the, and the players enjoyed it. If you're going to use it, however, I'd recommend picking up the Kindred of the East companion as well as it includes useful tips for adapting it to the revised edition rules. On that note, I hope you enjoyed this little overview, and uh, thanks for listening. Okay, excellent. Now, this is the game, when I read it, that I thought I want to redo all my vampire games and make them like this. Uh, I was so impressed by the whole way that vampires were so different, so unique, um, the, the way they you know, replace the, the virtues and what have you with their uh, various kinds of you know, yin and yang uh, powered energy. Uh, and there was just something about, uh, about their, their disciplines that struck me as uh, more colorful and more uh, rich and more enjoyable than the standard vampire the masquerade. Mm-hmm. So for several weeks I was going on at my players going, we're going to scrap all the characters and we're going to start all over again and it's still going to be set in the West but we're going to use this, the mechanics of this book. And they were all like, yeah, no thanks. So it never got off the ground, but impressed the hell out of me. Yeah, I don't have too much to say about Kindred of the East. Um, I think it's very interesting when it's contained to its own setting in either the uh, the West Coast of the United States or uh, dealing with the stuff in East Asia. When it crosses over with Vampire the Masquerade, that's when things get a little funky because the, uh, the power levels are just so different. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I, I've, I, the only time I've used Kindred of the East uh, vampires, um, the uh, the horribly named uh, Kuei Jin, is um, it is in crossovers. Uh, I had a, a, a Kindred of the East assassin um, crop up in a couple of mage games, and he's running around in the daylight, you know, waving his katana and uh, being all Asian and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had no idea at all that this was a vampire. Uh, and still to this day, I don't think the players have cottoned onto it. Um, so that, for me, was a, was a real sign that this is something special here, something different that you can throw the players a complete curveball. 
Mm-hmm. Now, Mark, what do you think about making these different like ethnic versions of of different supernaturals? Well, it's so very nineties, isn't it? You know, mm. especially with uh, the idea that anything from the Far East is far cooler <laughs> and uh, far more exciting yep. and 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 far yep. more enlightened than us poor grabby Westerners. But you know, they they gave it a good shot. They they did did a lot of cover for for Asian mages and, and Mage of the Ascension. They really gave the Kindred of the East a, a good throw. Um, so I think I think if you if you're playing in genre, then it can work. Um, but I, I really don't, on the larger scale, don't see a, a need for it. Um, although, I, I, on the other hand, I do like the idea that different cultures have different uh, beliefs about vampires and different beliefs about werewolves and what have you. So I would put a lot of work in my own vampire games to coming up with different origin myths mm-hmm. um, so that uh, vampires from uh, Africa or vampires from Eastern Europe or Western Europe or the Far East or wherever all had different ideas about where they were from. Um, so I think Kindred of the East is a, is a good step in that direction. And uh, certainly Vampire the Requiem really takes that ball and runs with it. So that's, uh, that's quite good. Yep, that's very true. Well, that's all I got to say about that. And let's move on to Hunter the Reckoning, originally released in 1999. Mm. And this is a storytelling game of righteous fury. Hunter the Reckoning is a game of ordinary people thrust into extraordinary situations. Characters are not always the top crop of society. Rather than playing an art curator turned into a vampire or a technocratic CEO, the signature characters in Hunter are a cab driver, construction worker, a doctor, and even two botanist hippies. The event Hunter uses to spur characters into action is known as the imbuing. Characters receive a message from the heralds showing that someone or something is supernatural and wrong. This message can vary and take many forms, from billboard text saying, They walk among us, and revealing a vampire, to a voice in the candidate's head spurring them into action. Typically, these imbuings occur with groups, meaning that storytellers can run everyone's prelude at the same time. Hunters, alternatively referred to as imbued, the chosen, and a dozen other names, are defined in the rules by their creed, a supernatural amplification of their own ideology towards the monsters in the world of darkness. This creed determines what edges or powers are easily available to an imbued. The first creed is vengeance, perhaps the most violent of all paths. Avengers have edges oriented towards physical damage. The second is judgment, though many times these imbued also act as jury and executioner. Judges have edges to investigate monsters and block enemy powers. The third is defense. Defenders have edges focused on protection of themselves and others, some with active effects and others more passive. Next is vision. The visionaries are watchers and planners in the imbued cells. Their edges give insight into the supernatural, and perhaps even the future. Some hunters follow the creed of innocence. The innocent seeks out the supernatural to talk and learn. Their edges aid them with information gathering and keeping them hidden. 
The next creed is redemption. Redeemers seek to help and cure supernaturals, their powers including healing and other aid. The final creed is martyrdom. The martyr sacrifices mind and body for the betterment of their fellow imbued and even monsters themselves. As you can see, hunter cells contain very different ideologies. In particular, this makes hunter groups very fractious, and few large organizations exist. Perhaps the largest and most well-known hunter convention is HunterNet, a website where disparate imbued can trade what little information they have about the supernatural. The Hunter Core book also describes some cults that have sprung up surrounding the imbued, which don't get much more airtime beyond that in the rest of the game line. One thing to keep in mind with Hunter the Reckoning is that, like much of the other games in the old World of Darkness, it exists in a vacuum. So, for example, the vampires that you encounter in Hunter the Reckoning are not the kindred of Vampire the Masquerade. Additionally, the werewolves you encounter are not the Garou of Werewolf the Apocalypse. This means that, as a storyteller, you can change things, make subtle shifts in powers, effects, and perhaps societies of these other monsters. Indeed, this can be outstanding for dealing with a group that already knows so much about the World of Darkness. Perhaps they've read many books, perhaps there's a bit of a rules lawyer in the group. Making these subtle changes can really throw them off and make them take the rest of the game into perspective. One of the best built-in themes to Hunter the Reckoning is the brother against brother, the different ideologies and factions of the imbued going against each other. This springs up quite a bit in the different Hunter books. Another great thing to bring up about Hunter is the fact that the different source books focus a lot on gaming fiction. This gives a interesting extended story to the imbued, following at first Dr. Carlton Van Wyck and his small cell of hunters, but expanding to other hunters that participate in HunterNet or have their own interesting experiences. Finally, I'd like to mention the Hunter novel line. While some of the themes and portrayals are not in keeping with later Hunter books, the novels contain outstanding Hunter, Vampire, Werewolf, and Mage stories. So Mark, you've just heard what I've got to say about Hunter the Reckoning. What do you think of it? Well, Hunter the Reckoning, again, it's a game that I never got to play much. Um, although I did buy, the, I think, the core book and uh, the companion guide. Um, I, I enjoyed the idea of, of Hunters, but I was a little bit turned off by the fact that they're super-powered uh, supernaturals too. Um, you know, earlier on, you and I were talking about Project Twilight, uh, and that mm -hmm. for me still remains one of the quintessential hunters done right. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. They're just they're mortals, and they've got they've got no edges. They've got nothing. You know, they have a pointy stick and a, and a lot of hope, and that's it. Um, I I would like to see Hunter the Reckoning. I, I could see that as being reimagined. You know, I could see that as a, developing them into a new proper supernatural splat for want, want of a better word but I never got my teeth into them as hunters of other supernaturals because um, I, I never saw them as anything other than supernaturals themselves uh, 
and again, you know, I'll be the first to, to put my hand up and say, I didn't immerse myself in the game, so I may be completely off base here. But that was the feeling I came away with. And so I, I never really got much use out of, out of Hunter the Reckoning. No, that's a very good point, Mark. And actually in Hunter Apocrypha, which is the, uh, the sort of prop book that they released, they, mm-hmm. they discuss in that the, uh, their struggle to figure out if they're really still human anymore. And that's kind of yeah. an interesting aspect, which you can bring into your games and make it that much more poignant. But as I bring up in my review, which you're not actually able to hear, Mark, but uh, <laughs> I mentioned that Hunter is a, uh, it's about ordinary men put into extraordinary situations. And that's that's caused by the imbuing. And I think that's one of the things that's very interesting and, and poignant about it, especially because when you look at Hunter compared to the other Supernatural games... These aren't like art curators turning into vampires or 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 CEOs running the technocratic union. It's just a plumber and yeah. he has to deal with all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah, we had a great show where, where I think uh, Chuck Wendig joined us on. A, we did a Hunter special and looked at you know everything from Hunter's mm-hmm. Hunted right the way through to uh, uh, to Hunter the Vigil. And one one point that came up in that and something this is one of the things that I liked about Hunter was the fact that the hunters can see the supernaturals for what they are, whereas uh, some kind of sh- you know shambling, rotting zombie guy might appear just to be like a postman. Yep, uh, yep. The hunter can, the hunter sees him as oh my god, it's a kind of rotting, shambling zombie guy, and then goes and kills him. And everyone's like, well, you just killed the postman, you know. Uh, and I, I like the idea that you can have a game that plays on the fact of well, did you kill the postman? Maybe he wasn't a shambling, rotting zombie guy, and maybe you're just insane. Uh, so I, I think I would probably amp up that angle if I were to uh, if I were to get a hunter game off the ground. Very cool. All right, Mark, I think we'll move on to Mummy the Resurrection, which was released originally Excellent. in 2001. And Vergas presents this storytelling game of, does it even have a uh, tagline? Bandages, yeah. Of bandages. <laughs> All right. Hello and welcome. I'm Vergas, and tonight for your enjoyment is a review of the Old World of Darkness, Mummy the Resurrection. Mummy first reared its immortal head in 1992 just prior to the release of Werewolf the Apocalypse. Written by Stephen Wick, the book follows a friendship between a vampire, Edward Hollister, and a mummy, Sha'ura. In typical World of Darkness style, the beings discussed are not the bandaged wrapped shambling corpses of Hollywood, but men and women that have been made immortal by powerful magic. When a mummy dies, their soul, or ba, is released for a time into the spirit world. Their ka, or rape, remains in the underworld to guard the mummy's physical remains or cut. After the mummy's bar has regained sufficient strength to rejoin the car and cat, the mummy is reborn exactly the same as when it was created. Mummies are truly immortal. While they can die, they will always be reborn. Death of its dangers, however, as long periods of time in the underworld erode a mummy's memories of their past lives. Mummies are created by and are skilled in the use of magic being well versed in the arts of alchemy, necromancy and the creation of amulets. Mummy's creation has its roots in ancient Egypt and the story of Set and Osiris. After Set dismembered Osiris and scattered his body parts across the Nile Delta, Set imprisoned Isis and Horus, the wife and son of Osiris. During this imprisonment, Set plucked out Horus's eye, stealing with it his soul. Isis, a powerful sorceress, kept her son alive with the knowledge of magic just barely. With the aid of loyal servants, she fled with her son and escaped. During this time in hiding, 
Isis discovered her spells keeping her son alive were failing, and without a soul, Horus would never find the Elysian Fields. With the aid of Anubis, Isis perfected the spell of life, the magical rite that grants mummies immortality, thus saving her son. However, Set stole an imperfect version of the spell and created his own Bane mummies. Horus also created more mummies to aid him in his war against Set and formed a power base in the Alps that remains still. Mummy of the Resurrection was released in 2001 as part of the Year of the Scarab series, written by Jim Comer, Robert Hatch, Jesse Heining, Conrad Hubbard, Steve Kenton and Richard Ruam. If second edition took major steps forward in system and background development, then Mummy the Resurrection steps forward in leaps and bounds. The advancement of the metaplot of the World of Darkness, mainly the sixth great males from the underworld, meant the Dark Kingdom of Sand was utterly destroyed and the souls residing there were either cast into oblivion or torn apart by the spectral winds. The Maelstrom woke Osiris from his slumber, he gathered up the remains of the souls torn asunder by the storm and used all his magical power to enter the Web of Faith. The Web of Faith being a network of holy sites and magic found throughout the Middle East and detailed in the Year of the Scarab series. Osiris then cast out the remains of the mummy souls and they sought to join with the flawed or incomplete souls of mortals that had recently died. If they accepted, the soul of the mortal and the mummy were joined and reborn as the undying as the mummies now refer to themselves. The nature of the soul that was cast out by Osiris influences the magical paths that the mummy has an affinity for. It also affects the mummy's worldview and how they go about fighting the worm. These are not like vampiric clans or werewolf tribes, but much more like a shared common point of view, rather than a cultural or hereditary trait. But each of the undying is flawed by the soul that joins the mortals, and each type has its own liability, be it a violent streak or a desire to hurt oneself as a example. Weighing in at a mighty 233 pages, Mummy the Resurrection is stuffed with details on the web of faith such as Mount Arat in Turkey or the Valley of Kings in Egypt. It also discusses the Tiamalki of South America and the Wutian of, far, of the Far East. Mummy the Resurrection is almost a full-blown game line in its own right, but you still require one of the other core World of Darkness rulebooks to play a game. The release of the player's guide, also part of the Year of the Scarab series, clarified many of the points glossed over in Mummy the Resurrection, and expanded upon both the Tiamalki and the Wutian significantly, both having fuller explanation of their own unique worldviews and their own unique powers. Weighing in at an even mightier 239 pages, the player's guide should really be thought of as the missing part to Mummy the Resurrection as an invaluable resource to anyone running a Mummy Chronicle. In summary, the Mummy line has developed quietly and gone from a shaky start to a confident finish. The scope for a Mummy Chronicle is vast and can even incorporate the changes wrought by the Maelstrom. Mummies are also ideal at spanning the divisions some of the other denizens of the World of Darkness have and could easily be the linchpin of a crossover chronicle. Mummies also make for very interesting NPCs, either as allies or antagonists for mages, garrow, wraiths or kindred. Once again, however, the changing line has been overlooked. But that put aside, all the books are very well written and in all cases, but especially Mummy the Resurrection, they have some great artwork too.
the only downside still remains the amount of information that is needed to fully understand these enigmatic beings. That's it for now. I hope you enjoyed this, and bye-bye for now. Cool. Well, Mummy is another one that we covered a little while back, um, as a, just as an overview of the game lines, uh, rather its its development from um, a little vampire supplement in first edition World of Darkness to being a, a splat book soft cover on its own in, in second edition to being a fully fledged game line, um, and with the exception of maybe the last two on our list here, uh, Demon and Orpheus, Mummy is the game that I want to run the most but never have. I've used mummies in Dark Ages, I've used them in Mages, all as NPCs, because I just think they're fascinating. And whereas Changeling has this perhaps undeserved reputation of being the happy, shiny World of Darkness game, for me, I think it's Mummy. It's one of the most hopeful, life-affirming, positive-minded games out there, I think. I think it's brilliant, and I really regret that I've not been able to get more playtime with it. Hmm. Yeah, you got it, Mark. Andrew Bates, the developer, specifically went out wanting to make a hopeful game, and I think he definitely succeeded in that. Now, one of the interesting things about uh, about Mummy is that it only had two books. There's the core book and the player's guide. And I've always wondered yeah. if it was actually supposed to be like a full-blown line, or they just said right from the get-go, we're going to make these two books, they're going to be good, that's all. Yeah, and, and they did. And, and it, you really do need both, I think, to get a full picture of it, because there are the, the different types of non-Egyptian mummies that are outlined further in the, in the player's guide. Together, they are a fantastic source of any number of games, uh, depending on you know on, on how imaginative, imaginative you are, and the fact that it doesn't succumb to the supplement treadmill, I think is a strength. Mm. Um, my my only uh, misgiving about it is I preferred the mummies as they were pitched in the second edition version, uh, without the kind of shared soul element of them. Whereas Mummy mm. the Resurrection, you've kind of got twin souls merged into one body, and that can be kind of fun. But the 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 uh, the second edition iteration rang a little more true for me. But, you know, it's, it's easy to kit bash and, uh, and modify as, as all these things are. So uh, there's, there's nothing there that prevents it from being a, a fantastic game line on its own right. Well, you bring up a good point about that, Mark, because in Moment of the Resurrection, you have that same like coming-of-age story that you have in the other World of Darkness games, as opposed yeah. to the other versions of Mummy, the uh, first edition, second edition, where you're this age-old... Oh, man, I'm trying to remember what they're called. Shemsu Heru, is that? Shemsu Heru, yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And you've been living for, for so long, and you have all this knowledge. It's very different from the other supernatural types. Yeah, and I think that's what, what uh, interested me in it in the first place, is you, you can pick up and go playing this elder immortal, uh, which is kind of cool. All right, Mark, let's move on to Demon the Fallen, which was originally released in 2002. And I'm going to present this storytelling game of uh, Hellfire? Heavy metal. Heavy metal. I, should, I, think that's, I think that's werewolf. Oh, okay. All right, anyway. Black metal, then. While infernal entities have remained subtly in the background of all old World of Darkness games, with the Bali and Vampire, the Nefandi and Mage, and perhaps the Neverborn and Wraith, Demon the Fallen took a dive into the deep end and introduced playable fallen angels. Demon the Fallen has a backstory so grand and sweeping that it puts Vampire the Masquerade to shame. Our story begins with creation, when one of the Elohim, Aramel, foresaw a disaster that God would orchestrate. He confided this vision to Lucifer, who was the first angel to rebel against God and the heavenly host to defend humanity. 
This rebellion grew and came to a head when Cain murdered his brother Abel, and the angels learned how to kill. Now, this rebellion failed, and God banished all the fallen angels to the abyss, a prison known as hell. All but Lucifer, the firebrand and charismatic leader, was able to escape the abyss and wandered the earth for eternity. During this time, the earthbound were summoned from the abyss and bound to items and places, supremely powerful demons trapped while watching the mortals they fought for walk freely. For millennia, this was the only presence of fallen angels in the world. That is, until the abyssal prison broke open. And through the cracks, the smallest demons escaped, returning to the mortal world. Driven mad by millennia of torture and imprisonment, these demons are forced to find suitably broken mortal hosts to survive in. With their memories broken and living in a strange new world, the demons try to rebuild their community and plan for the final nights. Now, Demon of the Fallen is especially notable for using a splat and faction setup similar to that found in the new World of Darkness games. Elohim first belonged to a house which they belonged to in the early days of creation, and this defines their different powers. Demons also join factions which represent ideologies they hold in the modern day. The fallen houses are as follows. The defilers, or Lamasu, have control over water and once loved humans, but were the first house to fall and be trapped in the abyss. In the modern setting, defilers seek to destroy people and organizations for their own purposes. The devils, or Namaru, have control over flame and light. In the modern setting, many of these angels join the Luciferian faction. The devourers, or Rabasu, control plants, animals, and nature. Malefactors, or Anunnaki, control the earth and knew the mysteries of tools and crafting which they gave to humanity. In the modern day, malefactors hate humanity for corrupting and slowly destroying the earth. Scourges, or Asharu, were once the guardian angels, and can now, in the modern nights, heal and harm in equal measure. Slayers, or Halaku, were once the angels of death, and now have the ability to enter the Shadowlands found in Wraith the Oblivion. Finally, demons typically join one of five factions according to their own beliefs following their escape from Hell. Cryptics gather knowledge to discover what really happened millennia ago. Faustians want revenge against God. Luciferians seek to defend humanity and battle heaven as the Morningstar taught them. The Raveners want to destroy humanity. And the Reconcilers seek to atone for their past sins. Now, Demon is particularly poignant and interesting because it tries to tie together the backstories of all the other World of Darkness games and bring it all together in one package. Now, it does this subtly and through hints, but you can infer, for example, with the Anaku, that they believe in the same nature versus technology that the guru believe in.
So that's Demon the Fallen. Great game. Hope you really enjoy this. So Mark, what do you think of Demon? Well, like I said just a minute ago, Demon is one of those games that I've never yet managed to play. And I only was able to pick it up a couple of years ago. Um, I missed I missed the release completely. Uh, I either didn't have the time or the money or the awareness to see it hit the shelves. I managed to grab a half of the books uh, at a, a sale at a local game store. And I think it's just fantastic. I would love, love to play or run this game. Um, but unfortunately, I've never never had the option to, the opportunity to do it. Um, I just like the whole... Uh, I like the whole, you know, demons seeking either redemption or further power. I love the idea of the Earthbound as these massive antagonists who you just don't want to go anywhere near. I love the idea of these uh, of, of the demons having once had perfection and now it's gone and they can't get it back. Uh, they they knew all the answers and they've they, they've lost them all. Uh, and that for me just makes a very compelling uh, creature to play. Hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Demon, I've always kind of steered away from, because simply when I was uh, living with my parents, because I, I got into World of Darkness games when I was in high school, I didn't really want them to find a book that said Demon the Fallen Demon. and was all about <laughs> playing demons. So my, my exposure to it's been fairly minimal, actually. Yeah. That said, there have been some great tie-ins with, uh, with Demon. Uh, there was Devil's Due put out for the Dark yeah, Ages line. The Dark Ages, that's brilliant, yes. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Landbook Bali, uh, got a love-hate relationship with that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, everyone knows that maggots are evil, so you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I did a lot of work with Bali in my uh, in my Dark Ages game, so we were able to sort of feed some demonic elements in that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, we had this fallen angel character running around the modern mage game. Um, so there's been echoes of demon, but uh, never never the full thing. Great. All right, and with that, we're gonna get to the last game, Orpheus, released in 2003. And Bogganite, better known as Adrian Stagg from the Mirage Arcana, is going to discuss this storytelling game of uh, more ghosts. Show, 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 showing you how cool Wraith could be if it continued. Yeah. Uh. Hey, Darker Days fans. This is Adrian from the Mirage Arcana podcast, and I'm chipping in with my review of Orpheus. Now, Orpheus was produced in about 2003, and it was quite a revolutionary step for White Wolf in the fact that it introduced the idea of having a limited print run. Of course, as Old World of Darkness fans, we were used to having unlimited support for all of our favourite games, so the idea that you could put out a main core book and then have only five supplements and call it quits was quite a novel concept. Of course, those of you who are familiar with the new World of Darkness, especially with Changing the Lost and also with Hunter the Vigil, will know that this idea has certainly been able to be carried through into the new World of Darkness. Orpheus is very clear in the fact that they didn't want it to be connected to the rest of the intellectual properties of the old World of Darkness. It does say in the beginning of the book that even though it is a role-playing game about interacting with the dead, there would be little scope for you to have interactions with the Euthanatos or the Giovanni or even the Silent Striders, as Orpheus was designed as a standalone game. That's not to say that you can't have crossovers, it's just that I feel that if you did so, you'd be diluting some of the very rich flavour that you get from this role-playing game. So what is Orpheus? 
Well, it centres around the Orpheus Group, which is a corporation who have managed to harness both technological and chemical innovations in order to pierce the veil between our world and the afterlife. They've recruited a number of agents, both amongst the living and the dead. The living agents are often people who have experienced a whole range of near-death experiences and as a result have a particular affinity for the types of work that they're going to be undertaking. The Orpheus Group also employs spirits of the The primary objective of the Orpheus Group, at least on the surface, is to provide a niche service to people who can find a use for the particular talents that their agents possess. And this is specifically being able to enter the spirit world, become one of the restless dead, one of the ghosts, and then to undertake missions for the Orpheus group. So you might be called upon, as the character in the introductory fiction is, to spy on people. In that case, it was a wealthy man who was very, very fearful that his wife was committing adultery. And so as a result, the agent takes on ghost form, goes to the man's house and lays there in wait, watching, observing what's going on and gathering evidence. Of course, I'm sure that with very, very little imagination, you'd be able to come up with some more nefarious uses for this power. The characters that are created for Orpheus are very similar to those that you would find in other World of Darkness games, at least mechanically, but there are strong points of differentiation. The first thing that you have to consider, of course, after picking your concept and your nature and demeanour, is to slowly build your character around that. The first thing that you'll need is a lament, which is essentially how your character enters or projects themselves into the afterlife. So two of the types of laments are given to living agents and two of them represent the dead. Skimmers and sleepers both project themselves into the, into the afterlife. Skimmers use a form of yoga techniques in order to bring the body to a point where it is calm enough that you're able to eject your soul. Whereas sleepers, which are slightly more creepy, are instead cryogenically frozen. They're brought to that point of death. And sleepers have a slight edge over skimmers in that they're able to remain in ghost form for a very long time, often measured in months. And whilst they're off wandering through the afterlife and and uh, completing their missions for the Orpheus group, their bodies remain back at headquarters, frozen and attended over by a small army of medical practitioners. The other two laments belong to those agents who are already dead. You have spirits, who, as the term suggests, are the spirits of the dead, usually the recently deceased. And the second type is hues. Now, these are pretty much the same as your spirits in that they are the ghosts of the dead, but they have one major difference. All of the people who become hues were users of a particular drug called pigment or black heroin and this drug is mentioned several times through the main source book and there are developments as the meta plot progresses. The second thing that you need to pick is a shade which is really what type of spirit you are when you project. 
and these range from banshees who are the empaths of the game and have got a lot of powers based on emotion and swaying people's emotions through to the far more violent poltergeists who do very much fit the stereotype that we have of poltergeist stories. There are also others, for example, haunters, skin riders and wisps and each one of these has a particular aspect or a particular angle that they fulfil. Once you've selected your Lament and also your Shade, it's time then to select some powers, and powers in the game are called Horrors. A lot of the powers, if you're familiar with Wraith the Oblivion, are almost direct mirrors of the Arcanoi, which are found in that game. Each one of the Shades has a Horror, which they have an affinity for, and also a horror which they have absolutely no chance of ever learning, usually because it is the antithesis of the stereotype or the general nature of that shade. For example, poltergeists who are very much about violence and action and physical prowess cannot learn whale which is the primary power of the Banshees because they lack that ability to connect emotionally or at least their powers don't have that strong connection that someone who projects as a Banshee does. So there's a lot of internal logic to how the game is set up. The fact that you can only pick certain horrors does also influence the way in which you create your group. Now, in Orpheus, a group of agents, whether they are alive or dead, are called a crucible. It's very important to have the pre-game discussion with both your storyteller and also with the other members of your crucible because you'll be able to see where you can take powers that perhaps fill in gaps or are powers that are forbidden to some of the other agents within the group. And it's a very, very good idea to sit down and work out how you're all going to mesh because after all within the game the Orpheus group will probably not put together a group of agents who cannot work together to achieve the mission parameters so you're going to need to keep this in mind that it is very much a team oriented game the other two traits which are very different but also again have that Wraith the Oblivion counterpart are to do with vitality and also spite. Now vitality is a representation of your life force. It can also be used to power some of your horrors and it does have a range of uses but essentially it comes back to the idea that vitality is your life essence. The other one is spite and it represents how much anger and also how much self-loathing, all of those negative emotions. It gives you a rough barometer of where your character stands and how emotionally stable they are as well. Now vitality and spite of course in Wraith the Oblivion are mirrored by your corpus and your angst. And all the way through the book, it's very, very clear that what they've done is use the wraith mechanics in order to build a lot of the concepts which are within Orpheus, which I think is pretty neat because what it does is it links the games conceptually and also mechanically, but they are two very, very different experiences. It makes it feel as though you're part of a shared world, but you're just experiencing it from different angles. So... From a design perspective, I think they've done a lot of cool things with Orpheus. Linked to this concept of spite and how emotionally sound your character is 
are a game mechanic called Stains. Now, when you project, essentially what you're doing, if you're one of the living agents, is you're ejecting your soul out into the afterlife to go and interact with that portion of reality. If you're already dead, well, of course, it's definitely your soul that is interacting. Stains are marks on your soul, which are gained from an overabundance of spite. So as your character gains spite and taps into those negative emotions, it has a very, very real and very, very noticeable effect upon his soul. And you pick up stains as the game progresses. You will actually start with a number of them because your character is not the most balanced of individuals at the best of times. The major themes of the game seem to revolve very heavily around morality and ethics. A lot of the questions asked through the core rulebook have got to do with the fact that even though we have the technology and the ability to do the sorts of things that the Orpheus group do, does that necessarily make it right to do them? These are questions which I think that in any good game of Orpheus you would be asking yourself as a player and your storyteller should be putting in little ideas, little nudges in this area to make you really think about whether the inordinate amount of remuneration that your character receives is commensurative to the damage which is being done to his or her soul. Interestingly, you can create complications within missions very easily. Because you're being paid to do a very particular task, the Orpheus group will make sure that you are focusing on that one task. However, what happens if we take that example from the beginning of the book in the fiction, where you have a wealthy client who has employed you to spy on his wife? What happens if during that rather innocuous mission you spot some other far more horrible, far more horrific things happening? You can't simply abandon your mission and follow your conscience. Or can you? These are the sorts of decisions which I think would make the game very interesting and it's not necessarily just the interaction with the people who are living which is going to make things interesting but also dealing with perhaps some of those more classical elements of a good ghost story. The idea of an unresolved issue within a spirit's life that perhaps you're co-opted as an agent to go off and explore. Now, how much free time you have away from your missions is completely up to your storyteller, but it can lead to an interesting second layer of the plot if you have got a spirit which you have agreed to do a particular task for that perhaps conflicts with your current agenda within the Orpheus group. So there's a whole range of bringing those personal emotions and... I can bring a lot of the ideas that I had for Wraith the Oblivion into this game as well. Of course, as far as inspiration material goes, there's an overabundance of material that you can tap into. Everything from classic ghost and gothic stories and teasing out some of the main plots and some of the main themes within those through to modern television and also movies. There is an excellent section in the beginning of the main core book which deals with pacing, which is something that I think that a lot of storytellers should read because you notice that there are natural ebb and flows within any games and being able to anticipate or build those into the game, I think, would make the game run a lot smoother and help you in building tension and highlighting the really important parts of the game. The section that deals with pacing takes a number of movies, including Aliens, and what it does 
is maps them out in terms of how long should you be waiting in a movie before the major action starts? Where do you put the plot divergences? Where do you put the major choices for the core characters? And also, how do you build up to the finale? They create a formula which says, this is how Hollywood essentially writes movies. And if you take a look at a lot of movies with this section of the book in your hands, you'll find that they're completely right. And it gives you the opportunity to take these ideas and put them into any game, not just Orpheus. Now that's a very brief overview of what to expect within Orpheus. It is a remarkably easy book to get a hold of, and also the five supplements which talked about an expanding meta plot and followed a very, very clear-cut path are also very easy to get a hold of. Whilst you can follow the Chronicle, which is outlined in the supplements, there is also a strong encouragement to build your own Chronicle. So don't think that if you pick up the main rulebook, you're going to be locked into purchasing another five books and following a set Chronicle, because this simply isn't so. I really think that Darker Days could probably get a whole episode out of the goodness that is in this book. But what I would encourage you to do at the moment is to track down a copy of the core rulebook, have a bit of a read, and if ghost stories, mystery stories, stories about government conspiracies, or even simply stories about the occult interest you, I think that you're going to find a niche within Orpheus and it's going to open up a whole realm of really good gaming stories for you. Well, Mark, do you have any experience with Orpheus? No, and it took me ages to find the books. And uh, I, I have them now, um, but I've not managed to uh, to get any playtime in there. I would love to, but I, I have this kind of idea that in order to get an, uh, an Orpheus game sorted out, I have to run a Wraith game first to show the people mm. what the Shadowlands are like so that I can then destroy them and uh, you know, in Ends of Empire and then come back and, uh, and do Orpheus again afterward. Ends of Empire. Do you, have, you played, yeah. uh. <laughs> have you played Orpheus at all? No, um, I've actually got the book coming in the mail right now. I just bought it uh, a couple weeks back. Oh, the core book? Yep, so I'm finally going to be able to read it. Yeah, this is a very good uh, good review of it, because neither of us have played it, haven't really uh, no, read too much into it. Don't know what that is. Uh, <laughs> that said, I have read the anthology novel, and it was pretty interesting uh, as far as gaming fiction goes. It had four linked stories all dealing with the Orpheus group, and uh, some... I think I might have been linked into the Chronicle, the pre-made Chronicle that they have. But, I, I didn't even know there was one. Wow. Yeah. it. I think it came out in like 2003, so uh, White Wolf didn't keep it in print for very long. Right. Uh, cool. I don't want to spoil anything, but I liked it. Well, Orpheus gets, every time you read someone talking about it, they're just raving about it. And, and the idea of a limited-run six-book Chronicle where you, you, know, you pitch up at the beginning, you play, and it has a beginning, middle, and end, I think it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And I... I wouldn't be surprised if that model didn't lead to, uh, in some way, to the limited runs that were done in New World of Darkness, you know, like Changeling, like uh, Prometheus, et cetera, et cetera. Um, because, you know, it works. It, we can't stay on the supplement treadmill forever, as, as White Wolf have, uh, have, have quite rightly espoused recently. And I think Orpheus was a, a great first demonstration of how this limited run game line can really, really work. Yeah, I think you're actually really right, because Promethean, in each of the books, they had in the back a, a part of a chronicle, the Water of Life Chronicle, uh, mm. just like how Orpheus has parts of the chronicle in each of its source books going along. Yeah. And it's, I think it's an advantage now, to uh, looking back, to be able to go and get all six books and sit down and read them 
and plot it out with knowing what the ending is uh, and being able to do the foreshadowing and weaving plot threads in mm. and setting stuff up for, you know, well, this is going to be of relevance in part four kind of thing. Um, and as, as a primarily an old World of Darkness uh, storyteller, that is what I find one of the, the strongest elements of the old World of Darkness is that it's there. You don't have to worry that what's going to come out next month. Is that going to change my chronicle? Am I going to have to take that on board? You can pick and choose. And, uh, and you know, Orpheus is a neat little... Uh, uh, kind of demonstration of that concept in, uh, in a six-book package. Yeah, I think it's a very good segue to my next point, Mark. Just looking at the world of darkness as a whole, I really have to recommend that you don't be overwhelmed by it, because uh, just to share how my first Vampire the Masquerade chronicle looked, uh, it was set in 15th century Marseille, France, and there was all the different primogen, and the gangrel one was hanging out with the the werewolves, so I had to yeah. stat all those out, and I was like, well, I'm going to have the Malkavian rambling about hamsters all the time, and then it's really <laughs> going to be the puka who are going to come in and do something. So I started writing about the puka, and then luckily I've got an older brother who was into the games, and he was like, uh, Mike, that's a little ridiculous. I want to take a step back. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And, and what the Old World of Darkness has that reputation, you know, rightly or not, that it was this crazy, insane crossover fest with, you know, Puka coming out of the woodwork and uh, the, the Gru running with the gangrel and the mages coming around, blah, 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 blah. Um, and it, it always amuses me because the um, whereas New World of Darkness is written to be crossover friendly, it yet maintains its focus. And yet World of Darkness, the old version, was not written to be crossover friendly. Uh, oriented and yet mm -hmm. it has this reputation of being this massive smorgasbord of, of super friends um so I, I totally agree with you i think the thing to do is pick what you want you know say it's a mage game you pick your your, your core book you have two or three other books you know book of worlds book of madness and uh, maybe the technocracy book and that's it you've got enough there just in those three or four books to keep yourself going for for years uh, i think focus is key absolutely yep and i i also think it's i think it's a you know, to be a little bit critical, because I, you know, I, I tend to just be a, a fanboy, really. But <laughs> to try and be critical, I think it, there was not enough strong storyteller advice given early enough in the game lines. Um, there are great storytellers' guides for most of the games, but they tended to come out three, four, five years into the game's life when people had already picked up the ball and run in various directions. And I think one of the things that the New World of Darkness does is it, it tells you right in the in the in the core books, right from the get go. Just take it easy. Take it, uh, take a, a small area, build a small political scene or a, you know a series of personal relationships, and keep the focus small and tight. And that gives the games a chance to grow and breathe within their own arena without being overwhelmed by um, you know soul eaters and the and the, the chattelings of Enoch. Dirty secrets of the Black Hand, always <laughs> going to come up. Mm. Yeah. Well, Mark, I yeah, think we're going to uh, let's go over to the New World of Darkness segment. World of Darkness 2.0. Oh my god! <laughs> I think that's going to have to be the next show, man. Yeah, I kind of agree. Let's cover the rest of the uh, New World of Darkness games next show. But Mark, have you been reading any New World of Darkness books or anything? Um, no, I'm uh, surprise, surprise. I'm rereading some Clive Barker at the moment. <laughs> oh, really? So, yeah, something never changed. Um, but I'm looking forward to picking up the two new Mirrors books and, uh, and getting stuck into those. And I've got my Mage Chronicle uh, starting up again after a little hiatus uh, next next Friday, I think it is. Um, so that should be fun. Yeah. What about you? I was looking into the uh, Dark Hero template for uh, in World of Darkness Mirrors, and that was pretty mm -hmm. interesting. I was thinking about trying to run a Ravenloft one-shot eventually, maybe oh, in the month awesome. of March. 
So that'd be kind of interesting uh, using the cool. the storytelling system for that. Yes, that would be fun. Uh, I, know, I think it would work well, actually. Mm-hmm. And other than that, um, well, I picked up a copy of Damnation Game by Clive Barker because I was like, man, Mark really uh, raves about this guy. And a buddy of mine in high school told me to read it. Uh, that was his first novel, yeah. That's good. Yeah, I didn't get that far. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's it's really good. Uh, I just was not interested in reading it at the time. It's yeah. it's really intense, though. And last week, I watched, what do you call it? Hellraiser. Oh, the first one. Oh, yep. cool. Yep, it was uh, streaming on Netflix. And I got to say... That is what horror is supposed to be. Yes. That was really intense, and I felt a little, a little defiled after watching it or something. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's messed up. Well, Damnation Game, if you get further into the book, there's a scene in the book that actually made me physically want to vomit, which is not not many authors do that. And Clive Barker, you know, he's, he's, he's tagged as a horror author and has moved away from that to, to one degree in later books. Mm-hmm. But Damnation Game, if you're into the horror genre, it really does deliver it, and intense is totally the word. Yeah, that's very good. Uh, you're kind of scaring me but away I'm, now, I'm dude. biased. I'm biased, so, you know. All right, cool. Okay. Yep. Well, I think we're going to we'll round out the show there. The show there. Um, for anyone who wants to get in touch with us, you can look us up on Facebook. Um, just Darker Days Radio on Facebook. You'll find us there and post your comments. We uh, don't have a forum right now, but we're looking into sorting that out. So if you want to drop us a line directly, uh, the email is, as always, uh, darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. And you can uh, you can uh, find us there, and my refreshing finger will be uh, waiting to reply. Well, Mike, you should you should develop your refreshing finger too, actually. Yeah, I do. So uh, no, no, I I constantly refresh the uh, www.darkerdays.tk, which is our uh, our podcast feed, just to see how many hits we get. Yep, I'm pretty obsessive about mm-hmm. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and for those of you who have been having trouble finding the show. Some of you still have, uh, I've seen, have uh, feeds directed to uh, Darker Days Podbean. Um, that's now moved on to something of uh, Vince's creation. So if you want to reset your subscriptions to uh, darkerdays.tk, like Mike says, or subscribe to us through iTunes, and you'll get the show uh, delivered uh, fresh to your doorstep. Sounds good. Right, well, we'll, uh, we'll call episode 22 there. Um, a rapid-fire look at the various worlds of the old world of darkness uh next show we'll take a look at the new world of darkness so thanks for listening in this is uh goodbye from me yeah i think we call this show darker days 22 the wrath of mark (laughs) all right see you later guys take it easy